Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Quartz 96 FM. Good morning and welcome to Friday's Opinion Line. Fiona Corcoran sitting in for PJ Coogan today and hopefully if it all goes well today I'll be back again next week as well because PJ just needs a, a bit of a break. He's been he's been doing Trojan work over the last couple of months. So we have a packed show ahead to kickstart your Easter weekend. Coming up, uh, our phone calls becoming a fading phenomenon with WhatsApp, Snapchat and Facebook making it much easier to communicate in text form. We ask, are more and more of us becoming phone shy? Also, what can we do to protect our bee population? We'll be hearing about a project in Ballancolig that's aiming to do just that. Plus, with Easter Sunday almost upon us, we'll be chatting about our love of chocolate. That and plenty more coming your way before 12. As ever, we want your comments and opinions. You can call us on 1850 715 996. You can text or WhatsApp 0833 96 96 96. Or you can email opinion at 96fm.ie Excuse me. (laughs) Now, first this morning, there are concerns yet again over large crowds gathering at outdoor amenities across Cork. With the lovely weather yesterday, large crowds descended on the lock and one student got in touch with the opinion line with this message. I was ashamed and shocked to see so many people gathered at the lock yesterday. We've been through so much this year and it's very disappointing to see people flaunting restrictions like this right when the country is about to open up again. The public health advice is very clear that socialising in big groups is not safe. As a student, I'm so saddened to see this behaviour from other students and young people. It's not representative of the vast majority of the student body at UCC and CIT who've been diligently following guidelines for months and will continue to do so. Now, they are the words from Lisa. Meanwhile, at Bell's Field, a large number of teenagers were gathering and drinking across the evening and Lord Mayor Joe Kavanagh described the scenes as disgraceful. I'm joined now this morning by Lord Mayor Joe Kavanagh. Uh, Lord Mayor, good morning. Good morning, Fiona, and congratulations <laughs> and uh, wishing you every success in, in, in uh, filling in there for, for the bowl TJ. <laughs> I have big shoes I, I, to I, fill. <laughs> I'm not at all. I have no doubt at all you do a brilliant job. <laughs> Thanks very much. The nerves are getting to me this morning, but I think I'm kind of getting a little bit settled now, so it's good to have you as my first guest. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. Listen, last night I got um, a number of calls and I partly guessed what they were about mm-hmm. and residents were, they felt what they said to me, and this is their words, they felt they were under siege really and um, they were intimidated, they felt they were frightened. There were bottles flying up from Bell's Field onto the road. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and I mean, while they were on the phone to me, I could hear the racket in the background. And it was quite intimidating because it is a very quiet, settled area up there. And it's Mm. been absolutely desecrated uh, at weekends. Um, But that is going to come to an an abrupt halt, I can assure you that, Fiona. That is going to come to an abrupt halt. Why did you say that? Because the Gardaí are going to literally... um, scourge it for the weekend now. It's going to, it's effectively going to be shut down for public gathering such as drink well, drinking in particular and large gatherings. Look, this is not just stuck to Bell's Field, Fiona. Mm. I mean this, this this is right across the city and look, I would appeal and it's lovely to hear that student sentiments at, at the opening of the show. And I I hope to God that student is a credit to herself, that student Lisa yeah. It's a credit to herself and all her colleagues who do abide by those guidelines and, and laws. And to hear that she is ashamed of the behaviour of the numbers of young people who have been gathering in large numbers. And I would I would appeal to students to, to respect the residents um, living in, in areas such as the Lock, Connacht Avenue, the Marina, Kennedy Park, Shalom Park, Kinvaran, Ballyvalan, Ashmount up the top there by Tivoli, and... Um, out in Blarney, the regional park in Ballincollig and various areas of Clanmire. I mean, there's calls coming into the guards and I was talking to the guardie last night and they're run off their feet, you know, and mm. as you say yourself, and as Lisa had said, it is illegal to gather in large numbers. It is illegal to drink in public. It's, it's um, you know, offences, it is an offence and, and numerous fines were handed out last night by the guardie. Okay. Lord Mayor, what would you say to the people, though, who argue that, you know, the students have been and young people in general have been locked up now for the best part of for over a year and that they have nowhere to go. They've got nothing else to do. um, Their good weather is upon us now. And, um, you know, what, you know, that what else are they going to do? Like they are going to gather out in in areas like the lock. They are outdoors. What would you say to those people who are arguing that point? Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, they have a point. I mean, in fairness, now, not, not just the students, but the people of Cork as a whole, Fiona, mm. have been nothing short of exemplary on a national scale. I mean, we are probably the leading county in terms of case numbers at the moment, mm. in terms of observing uh, observation of restrictions and guidelines. And so many personal sacrifices have been made by so many people, not just the students, right across the city. People have suffered. People have suffered with their businesses. People have suffered personally. They've lost loved ones because of this virus. And the medical experts, of which I certainly am not one, have clearly stated that gathering of large numbers is the key way to spread this virus. And the current uh, variant that is rampant out there at the moment is highly infectious. And gathering in large numbers... Is, is the way that it will be spread. And unfortunately, and I I've, look, my heart goes out to students. It's a rite of passage for students to gather, to, you know, socialise and whatever. But, you know, showing a total lack of respect for communities. Uh, you know, you hear of the Gardaí having problems out there in Bandon Road, not in Bandon Road, but Connacht Avenue and various places like that, house parties. Um, etc etc mm. and this is on a daily basis So does and this go beyond like the, the COVID-19 guidelines is this like an antisocial behaviour issue as well here in the city Well yes it, there's an antisocial behaviour element to it as well uh, I mean and the Gardaí in fairness are doing the very best they can they are run off their feet 
in fairness to them. And it goes back to my, and I'm just going to reiterate my call at the Gardaí, how they haven't been vaccinated as a frontline organisation is completely beyond me. I, I sent a letter to the Minister for Justice uh, this week, gone by, um, highlighting my concerns for the Gardaí and the, the urgent need that every Garda in the country needs to be vaccinated. Because they are on the front line, they are policing our communities and are trying to protect uh, our civil society right across the country and in Cork. And they're doing an absolutely mm. sterling job. They really are. And, um, you know, I, I, I just want to commend the Gardaí for the fantastic job they're doing. And they are going to be policing all these various areas over the weekend to try and make sure that people living in their homes and residents, etc., don't feel that they're under siege by large groups and large gatherings. Because once somebody has a few pints in them and a few drinks in them, it does get a bit uh, rowdy, a bit obstreperous, bottles go flying, and there's a lot of litter left around. And our cleansing staff in City Hall have an absolute nightmare trying to keep uh, public amenities clean with broken glass and broken bottles. And you saw what happened up in the tank fields during the week, Fiona, where some mindless moron came along and stuck glass bottles into the ground, broke the bottle with shard glass sticking up. I mean, what kind of a person would mm. do something like that with young children playing on this public green space? I know, and just as you mentioned there, the Justice Minister, we will be speaking to her later on this morning, so oh, I am going to ask her about that, good. about the vaccines for the Gardaí. Um, yeah. Lord Mayor, as well, uh, you have been voicing over the last couple of weeks um, the delays in getting the vaccination centre at City Hall open. We have got good news on Leaside this morning that that is open. Obviously, that's a welcome development here. It's a very welcome development, Fiona, and it's been something like nine weeks now at this stage. And I have to commend uh, the HSE and Cork City Council for the sterling job they've done. They've done a magnificent job. It's been set up superbly. There's 30 boots in there. Uh, it's, it'll be fully operation as and from Tuesday. Um, now, there's vaccinations going on there today, but basically what's going on there today is they're just going vaccinating the people who are going to be working in there, the frontline agency mm. workers who will be administering, administering the vaccines and so on, you know. Um, but it's fully operation as and from Tuesday and for as long as is needed. So the concert hall and the Millennium Hall will be, and, uh, will be fully operational. What will happen is people will... Um, come in through the uh, tunnel at the Anglesey side of City Hall. Um, they'll queue along there. They'll go in the front door uh, into the um, check-in area just inside the door of City Hall. They'll be allocated a booth and then uh, you go straight in, get your vaccine, and then you go next door to the Millennium Hall and you access out then the side door through the Millennium Hall. And obviously it's only for people with uh, an appointment. You can't yes. just arrive with your ID and expect to get no. a vaccination. You need to have an no. appointment. Yes. yes. Brilliant. Okay. At the initial stages. But all that will become public knowledge anyway, Fiona, because this is going to be, it's going to be extremely busy down there. And it, um, it's been superbly set up by the HSE. Um, it's out of our hands now, Cork City Council, where we can't go into the concert hall or the Millennium Hall at the moment. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so it's uh, the HSE have have it under their full control, and it will run like clockwork. All we need, and you might impress on the minister when you're talking to her. Well, she's the minister for justice, obviously. Mm -hmm. You might talk to our colleagues in Dublin. We need a constant supply of vaccines. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's that's the key here to su to success and get as many people vaccinated as possible. Um, as soon as possible. But I would appeal to parents: know where your teenagers are over the weekend. And 
we're trying to make it a, 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 an enjoyable Easter for everybody, including residents. And I hope the young people enjoy themselves, but in a safe, sensible and manageable way and avoid gathering in large crowds. And finally, Fiona, I just want to wish you and the team there uh, a very happy Easter. <laughs> and same to yourself. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Thanks very much. Now, just on um, the subject there of Bell's Field, we've had some listeners contact the show. One listener says, on the subject of Bell's Field, I am a resident of Bell's Field. I was up Bell's Field the other night when we had beautiful weather with hundreds congregating there with drink and so on and not one guard in sight. So for Joe to suggest it won't happen again is, number one, very irresponsible of him to say and, number two, delusional. Another listener says, bring in the army to help the guard. It is crazy. We will never get out of lockdown. The older people need to get out too. The government should bring in a curfew. This is Court's Gold Imro Award winning talk show The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now 1850 715 996 on Court's 96 FM Welcome back. Now we're coming into the bank holiday weekend and obviously we uh, don't have a huge amount of places to go to so uh, we'll be probably watching a lot of TV. Now uh, what we're looking for here on the Opinion Line this morning is your recommendations for shows to watch on Netflix, Amazon Prime Disney Plus. Have you seen any good movies lately? Have you seen any good series? Let us know on text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96 and we'd be bringing you some of those recommendations across the morning. Right, next to UCC where the first female Students Union President has been elected in almost 20 years. Asha Woodhouse is on the phone now. Good morning, Asha. Morning, Fiona. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on and congratulations. Now, Asha, first Thanks, of all, yeah. before we talk about your, your new role, um, I, I don't know if you heard the conversation there that I had with the Lord Mayor um, just about you know, gangs of of uh, young people gathering on the lock and at Bell's Field. Now, I know that um, there's mm-hmm. some videos circulating on social media of what was going on at the lock and a lot of young people... And we're assuming that a lot, a large portion of them were uh, students. What's your own view on it? What's your own view on large uh, groups of young people like that gathering in these places outside? Well, I mean, on a personal level, I personally wouldn't, you know, condone the behaviour of mm. large congregations. I mean, it's obviously been a very difficult and isolating time for everyone. And I, you know, can understand if someone needs to see a friend or, you know, something like that. But mm. I do think there's a line of large congregations that just, um, yeah, it's just, it's just a bit disrespectful, I suppose, mm. to all the kind of sacrifices that everyone's been making. But at the same time, you know, there's also the angle of this is a very small minority of students that are, are behaving this way a lot of the majority of students aren't doing this doing this at all and I don't think all students should be painted with the same brush which I think does happen a lot yeah um and the other thing as well is like you know students were promised that we'd have college we we've moved so many have moved down to Cork and then they've just been locked up in their house Mm. um since September and I can I can see why people just have are having enough, you know. Yeah. Um, and we're we're not being acknowledged in any government announcements. Like our minister for Higher education isn't talking about students at all in any any of the announcements going on. And I think people are just kind of at their wit's end with it. So you know, I wouldn't condone the behaviour. I wouldn't do it myself. But I think it's it's difficult. You know, there's there's mm. um, a lot of angles going on here. 
Absolutely. Now, back to yourself. You're the first female UCC Students Union president for nearly two decades. So how does that feel? I know. <laughs> Amazing. I can't believe it. It's, it's such an honour and... Yeah, I just, I'm blown away. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. So what are you hoping to achieve in this role now? Oh, where to start? Um, <laughs> there's just so many things I want to do. Um, like, obviously, coming into the role and, and being the first woman in so long and the sixth woman ever to be the student union president um, in our college. I just, I want it to be a message to, to women or people in other minority groups that, you know, you can put yourself forward for these positions. You don't have to let other people who are usually in these roles take it all the time. And that was the kind of motivation behind putting myself forward for this is that, you know, people just, people are kind of hungry for change and hungry Mm. to have new people with new ideas um, in these positions and representing them. So that's the kind of first thing. But actually, I suppose coming into the actual job, which I'll start in, in June 1st, Right. Um, the first thing I want is I don't want a repeat of last year for students. We need a guarantee about you know what we're going to be expecting coming into the next academic year. Do we need to move down to the city? Like, do do we need accommodation and all this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, because it was just a nightmare last year. You know, we were really just fed empty promises and told three days before the start of term. You know, actually, sorry you're not going to have in-person class. And I understand, like, it, we ha- it had to be done because of the health guidelines, and I understand that. But, it, like, we just can't have a repeat of that. There's no reason for us to have a repeat of that. We need to we need to know what's going to be happening way before the start of term. So that'll be my, like, number one priority coming into the job. But then, overall, like, throughout the rest of the year, one of the things I really want to do is actually just bring back what it means to be a students' union. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the what a union is has just become kind of lost in student politics a lot of the time yeah. um, and that's something I want to really bring back you know it's not about me as an individual it's about all of us together being a collective and using our collective power to really try and change the things that are affecting us negatively Obviously you had to run a campaign to be elected for this role so can you see yourself going into a career in politics when you finish college? Um, it's not on the cards at the moment no I <laughs> It's. I I prefer the kind of the union work side of things. I I wouldn't be uh, one for the the like putting myself forward in the electoral system. I think yeah. it's not exactly for me. But um, I do. I have a great interest in politics and um, the workings of the world. So we'll see. Do you think it's an unappealing uh, career choice for young women? I definitely think it is. Um, you know, we do just get. Um, like the online, the way women are talked about in, in any kind of positions or power mm. when you're putting your face out there, um, just the language that's used and the jokes that are made and all this kind of stuff, it is just um, a bit demoralising to watch as any any woman from the sidelines and it's tough to put yourself out there, um, you know, because you are just afraid of putting a target on your back and that people are going to come at you if you slip up in any way, shape or form. So I definitely see why it's not such an appealing thing for a lot of women. Brilliant. Well, listen, thanks so much for joining us and congratulations and best of luck with the role. All right. Thanks very much, Fiona. Thank you. Thank you for joining us um, on the Opinion Line this morning.
Uh, just going back to the scenes at the Lock and Bells Field, we have another few uh, comments coming in here. One listener says, lots of young groups gathering and drinking at Boating Centre at Dripsy. No guards in sight. Another listener asks, how are the guards run off their feet? There's always a guard of the car doing a checkpoint at the Commons. Two guards are doing the checkpoint and one sits in the car. That's nearly every time I pass that checkpoint. Keep your comments coming in. Phone one eight fifty seven one five nine nine six. Text or WhatsApp oh eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six. And you can also email us at opinion at ninety six fm dot ie. Now, next this morning, I want to speak to Nicole Ryan. Nicole lost her brother when he was just eighteen years old. His name was Alex, and he died from a synthetic drug overdose at a party. Since his death, Nicole has worked with young people across Cork to help them be more aware of the dangers of drugs. Today, Nicole launches the first in a series of Instagram Live broadcasts. It's called The Alt Perspective, and Nicole has been telling me what it's all about. Nicole Ryan, um, you set up Alex's Adventures, and before we kind of talk about Alex's Adventures and what it is, you are bringing out uh, a form of a podcast, is it, uh, today, this Friday? Yes, a start of a form of a podcast on Instagram. It's only alive, though, um, so it's only available on Instagram. I'm going to be doing it weekly, so I'm trying to get it for just six weeks. Right. So it's called The Alt Perspective, which is like the alternative perspective. And it basically follows the lives of six different people who've been through addiction, who've had um, experience in actual drug use. And it kind of, I basically share their story. They talk about their experiences, some of their kind of insights into it. Mm. And I think it gives younger people especially a really kind of first-hand account because I do them, you know, the um, Instagram stories every Monday where I pick a drug and I talk about it, the effects, all that stuff. But I want them to not just hear from me constantly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I want them to really get an insight as to what it is really like from somebody who's lived it. And it's the idea of that then um, to educate them and to maybe prevent them from, from trying drugs or, or what is the aim of it? Yeah, I think I think for them, the aim is to educate them primarily. Mm-hmm. It's to give them that insight um, because I guess, you know, there's sometimes they can be like, you know, people can think that like, oh, like this doesn't seem so bad or if I just try it once, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure all the people that will be coming on also had that same idea. Mm. And I think sometimes young people forget how easy it is to fall into addiction, um, even when you have no intention of doing that. And sometimes it's not just as easy as jumping in and jumping out of drug use. You know, um, it's not as simple as that, especially for young people, especially with COVID now. And for people who don't know what Alex's Adventures is, can you just tell us uh, what it is, why you set it up? Yeah, Alex's Adventure, geez, it's grown in the last five years, but um, I set it up as in 2016 after my brother Alex Ryan died. He took a synthetic drug at a house party up in Greenmount and he ended up having a cardiac arrest, went to CUH, he died four days later. So after that, I really wanted to kind of show people the kind of person that Alex was, but also educate young people about drugs and substances. And so I started off doing workshops. I did it for a long, long time. I still do them. Um, Everything's online at the moment. And I'm bringing out the new e-learning program for schools this August. And what kind of a reaction do you get from young people in schools and online when you talk to them? Because obviously if a spokesperson is going in um, and they can't connect with them, then it's just going over their heads. But for you, you have a real life experience of the the damaging consequences that drugs can bring to somebody's life. 
Yeah, um, and the the responses every time it's unbelievable for me. You know, I've been doing it for five years, mm. but they will always like students will reach out to me directly. They'll take time to message me after, or email me, or share their thoughts, share their experiences, and it's just that it's a lived experience that can only create that kind of connection. Um, so I want them to have that kind of insight with this alt perspective series that I'm doing that really hits home the message of, you know, you never know what you're getting, you never know what's out there, you need to be careful, you need to educate yourself, and you need to just know that even sometimes one youth can kill or can put you in addiction. Because obviously that night when Alex took that drug, he, you know, he was at a party, he was having a good time, and that's all that he was thinking, and he had never in a million years had dreamed that this would have happened. So, like, for the consequences for yourself and your family of that night, you're still living with that. Like, how have you been getting on over the last five years and how are you now? Yeah, it's it's very surreal. You know, we, we will live with this for the rest of our lives. There won't be a day that it'll just be over. Mm. Um, we've just kind of been getting stronger and stronger. It doesn't get any easier. And that's something that I always tell young people when I'm in the workshops. Because some of them, you know, would have lost and things like that. And they often say, you know, does it get better? It doesn't, but you get stronger. So you kind of just adapt and adjust to the situation. Um, but we're we're doing as best we can. You know, every time the anniversary comes up, any time his birthday's coming up, or just little kind of key moments, they're bittersweet. But it's, yeah, it's not as horrific as the initial shock initially, but mm. it's still hard. And you mentioned there that young people that you talk to, people in school, have, have already maybe in some cases lost somebody two drugs like it must be a very difficult thing for a young person to process like death in itself is obviously very hard to process but because of drugs like is there a different does that bring it to a whole different level I think it depends on the drug use how you know it ended up and things Mm. like that Um, and like you say a death in its own is a very difficult thing to process even for anybody and Mm. I can't imagine what it's like for somebody that's young Um, but I think in the space of drugs and stuff like that, when I come in and if somebody tells me, like they often, every time nearly that somebody has lost somebody due to drug use, they'll come up and they'll share their experience or they'll tell me, I was in a school last year and there was this girl, she was in third year, I was doing the workshop and she just stopped me and she just put her hand up, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, go for it. And Mm. she just said, my dad, you know, he just overdosed and she was crying and everything. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, you know, so sorry I hope you're doing okay. And she was like, I just, I just really wanted to share that with you, you know, and it was, I just really felt like, you know, it was, I was able to share that with everybody here today because of you. And, you know, for me, that was like, Jesus, like, that's somebody that was, you know, afraid. She's, th- she's in third so she's only about 14, 15. Yeah. And she's brave enough to do that because I was with her that day. So it's, it's, that that's the impact, I suppose, that people sometimes don't realise that happens. And I, I'm so lucky that I get to witness and feel it every day that I work with them. And, like, it's just, like, do you feel, like, obviously it was so horrific for you, um, the loss of your brother, but, like, it's, do you feel now that you're in a kind of a privileged position that you've been able to kind of um, not move on but you know what I mean, like that you've been able to use that to to make bring some good into other people's lives. Oh, very much so. I am so lucky in that respect, a hundred percent. Because I know that if I didn't, I'd definitely be stuck. 
mm. just like a lot of people can be if they've been through situations similar to this. It's such a difficult thing to try to move through. Um, and in my brother's case, especially because it was just such a, I think it brought the, the issue to everybody's door. It wasn't just a demographic of people. It was everybody's problem. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. And it was such a shock, a sudden thing that happened that we never saw coming as a family. And then we had to kind of rebuild everything. So I'm very lucky to be able to use and channel all of that grief energy into trying to help others. Would you have any advice for families if they suspect that somebody within the family is using drugs? Uh, Would you have any advice for them? I guess each family, each case is very, very different. Mm. But just try not to be judgmental and try not to react instantly. Because right. I suppose that's the worst kind of thing that can happen. The best thing is, you know, sit down and just try and discuss it in a calm manner because as a parent, the first thing is react, shout, scream, you know, and that's not going to get anywhere with the young person especially. So it's just kind of trying to be calm in the situation. And if not, there is help out there. There's lots of places where people can get help, especially around Cork. Mm. And if they wanted to reach out to you, how can they, they find you or how can they connect, connect yeah. with you? I'm on alexadventure.ie, um, Instagram, alexadventure, Facebook, same. Um, I'm all over the place. So just reach out to me, send me an email or anything like that. I'll always be the other end. And likewise for any young person, if they find themselves in a situation where they are being offered drugs and they're maybe afraid to say no, but they're afraid to take them, can they also reach out to you? And I suppose what what what, what kind of advice would you give to them as well? Because I suppose, you know, for somebody on the outside, it's easy to say, I'll just say no. But when you're in that situation and you're feeling the pressure from your peers and stuff, like it's, it's a very difficult thing for a young person maybe to say no. Oh, a thousand percent yes. And like, not in relation to drugs, but in relation to other things. When I was mm. younger, I was in those situations and I caved to peer pressure, so I get it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I teach young people, and I suppose parents as well, is that if a ch- if if you find yourself in that situation as a teenager, as a young person, you know it's bad, you don't want to do it, but you don't want to look uncool, yeah. is just to try and come up with a code word with your parent. So it could be like bananas. So when that situation is playing out, you text your parent bananas, your parent knows what that means. So then they start ringing you up. They start blowing up your phone, you know, constant. You might hang up a few times just to look cool mm-hmm. and they're still ringing you. So you pick up and, you know, they start shouting. Now your parent knows that you're in a situation that you don't want to be in and they need to come collect you. Mm-hmm. And then you're turning around. You're like, oh, my God, my mom, she won't leave me alone. She's coming to get me. Sorry, lads, I can't be here. And the parent looks like a bad guy because the parent has always been playing the bad guy since the dawn of time. <laughs> yeah. But the child is safe and everybody's yeah. safe in that moment. That's really good advice. Yeah, it's brilliant. Because like, it is a scary situation for a teenager. And, you know, obviously there's that whole experimental thing when you're a teenager as well. But it's just to know where the boundaries are, really. Exactly, yeah. And if, you know, like if you're, if a te- if, as a teenager, you're in a place and you're not comfortable with it, mm. I know it's easy to just say no, but just, you know, remove yourself from the situation as best as you can. You don't have to do something just because everybody else is doing it. Um, but it's just having that confidence within yourself to step away from the situation. And if all else fails, just try and use bananas and get get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just uh, your your Instagram live, it's it's going live tonight, uh, Friday night, yeah? Yeah, it's at 7 o'clock um, Friday night 
uh, on Instagram Live. We're going live, and the first guest is the lovely James Leonard, that okay. everybody knows. So I'm very excited to have him on, and it'll be a really good one, I think. Yeah, James Leonard is, uh, like, he has spoken quite a lot about his background, and he was um, addicted to heroin, and then he came out the other side, and he's recently got a master's, I think, or did he do a, a PhD in, in criminology or something? So he's a really good example of what can happen when you when you decide to turn your life around. Oh, 100%. He's a fantastic role model. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one for sure. Fantastic. So, 7 o'clock and it's Instagram. It's Alex's Adventures. Is it on Instagram? Yeah, so it's Alex's underscore adventure underscore. Brilliant. On Instagram. Great stuff. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Nicole. Thank you. Nicole Ryan speaking to me there and uh, just a reminder if you do want to tune in to that Instagram live it's at 7 o'clock tonight and the account on Instagram is Alex's underscore adventure underscore and Connor messaged in to say there I have worked with Nicole Ryan in the past and attended one of her workshops and I have to say they are fantastic and done very well. Other comments coming in to us just on the congregations Finn says morning Fiona a crowd that got moved from the lock and all filed past my house urinating in gardens and being loud and plain stupid another listener says so many times before Covid and during we have heard how short the country and county is of Gardaí the Gardaí are struggling as it is how do they intend to man the lock Fitzgerald's Park beaches etc to say this won't happen again is crazy and delusional parents need to start monitoring their sons daughters movements on a daily basis as I do with my 22 year old I talk about the consequences of his choices and how they affect other people. I also know where he is and who he's with on a daily basis, especially on his days off. Parents need to play their part and take more of an interest in what their young adults, sons and daughters are doing. And if you have any more comments on that and coming up, we're talking on the f- or we're talking to somebody just about talking on the phone and has it become a fading phenomenon amongst teenagers. So if you want to get in touch with us here on the opinion line, it's call one 915 Text or WhatsApp 0833969696 or you can email us at opinion at 96fm.ie. Go, go, go. It's the Club 96 is the soundtrack to your Saturday night on Quartz 96 FM. Darren Johnston spins all the biggest hits from 6. Then Rob Allen's got the old school mix from 10. Your Saturday night sorted. Sorted. Quartz 96 FM. This is Quartz Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 0833 969696. On Quartz 96 FM. Welcome back. Friday morning's Opinion Line. Fiona here with. Uh, Fiona filling in for PJ. Um, now, talking on the phone, has it become less of a thing, especially with teenagers? Are many of them fearful of talking on the phone to someone? Well, I want to discuss that with my next guest, Jackie Foley. Jackie, welcome to the Opinion Line. Good morning, Fiona. How are we doing? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? Now, Not too well. you posted a tweet the other day about this and posed the question, does anyone know why a lot of teenagers now will avoid making a call? They seem to hate talking on the phone. So what prompted you to ask that question? Well, I suppose from my own experience, I have a teenage daughter um, who is just turned 18. And for quite a considerable length of time, she will do anything to avoid um, talking on the phone, whether it's even calling a takeaway or a cab or even a family member. It's not Mm -hmm. even about speaking with strangers. 
And this seemed to be a trend that went right across um, her friend group. Uh, And I was wondering, was it a lack of confidence on the phone? Because these are very intelligent, very confident young, uh, you know, women and, and men. And uh, I was, I suppose my concern was, was it communication skills? If they found it difficult to speak on the phone, how difficult would they, would they find it speaking with strangers and say an interview situation or whatever? Mm. So, but it was not something that was, um, you know, very prevalent in it's something I was aware of in my age group. Mm. And so I just put it out there for to prompt a discussion. And my goodness, <laughs> the response was phenomenal. This thing went crazy. What were my people phone saying? Was up. Well, you know, first of all, I was told, I can tell you, because it was not something that was at all uh, confined to uh, the younger age people. I had people who contacted me from you know, people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, a gentleman of 85 who said as long as he's had the telephone in his life, he's always been anxious. He's always found it difficult to speak on the phone. Mm. I've had professionals, journalists and radiographer and a doctor all say why they have to make calls professionally. Um, It is still a cause of stress and anxiety and they would rather and have welcomed and delight with the the other uh, forms of media now and they would choose now to send a text or whatever when they can. Um, So definitely right across the, you you know, the age groups and some wonderful insights from people. Um, Obviously, uh, you know, I had a number of people contact me and say that for neurodivergent people, people who are suffering from anxiety, Mm. people who have hearing problems, you know, this is a huge uh, difficulty. Not having the social cues, not having somebody in front of you where you can read the body language and take your cues from that huge problem. Also, people saying it's a hassle rather than poor communication. Mm. Even to the extreme that people are saying it is rude to call somebody without prearranging the call because it's people just um, demanding of your time and there's no kind of recognition for other people's time and space. This was a big theme. People saying it's not okay to just pick up the phone and and expect a response. You know, other people have other things going on, whereas receiving a text, it allows somebody to formulate an answer to decide what they're going to say and when they're going to say it. Somebody had said that, um, you know, that receiving a call um, was akin to somebody turning up at their door. Are you surprised by that? Like, do you agree with that? Do you think it is rude to just ring somebody out of the blue or do you think that we should be texting them beforehand? It's been a huge learning for me because I am, you know, I suppose I've always worked in an office environment. I've always, since I was very, very young, Mm. um, been used to, first of all, trained to, uh, you know, use uh, the phone for time saving and for clarity and um, as well as that um, it's it's my go-to socially and professionally and of course I had to look at I saw the telephone as I suppose um, you know the the best form of communication and Mm. that's really challenging me now because I'm not somebody who would pre-arrange a call uh, normally I'd pick up the phone and ring and I would my uh, my attitude was that the person who received the call has the option of taking it or not and can mm. come back to me, but not really thinking of how it's being received. Is it a, a source of anxiety? Am I putting somebody on the spot? And of course, people hate 
voicemails. They hate <laughs> leaving them and they hate receiving them because it puts them on the back foot to have to respond. And do you think it's so, a cultural thing, Jackie? I know you said there earlier about your teenager, um, you know, that they won't phone for a taxi, they won't phone for a takeaway, but we can do everything now online and we can do everything course. on our phones. So is it just a culture thing now rather than, you know, uh, an anxiety thing? I think that's a part of it and I think it's a part of it for all ages that there are other options. Mm. And, you know, I mean, let's face it, this generation have taken communications and communication platforms to a new high. I mean, we have so many ways of communicating now. And I see, you know, my daughter and she's, uh, you know, she's on Instagram, she's on Snapchat and whatever, and she'll take her information from that. Uh, you know, and so there are many ways to communicate. You know, these um, uh, voice messages now that they leave instead mm. of typing up um, a text uh, they can leave and see there's control of it as well there's control of what they want to say when they mm-hmm. want to say it and, and receive it you know so yes I, I think culturally because there's so many options now the telephone isn't the only one but I suppose um, you know and, and for, for people who are older now they can finally with relief leave mm-hmm. the, the voice calls behind and look at other ways of uh, of communicating. So do you think um, that like phone calls like that will eventually die off? Well, I think, you know, there will always be uh, a need uh, for especially immediacy, you know, if somebody mm-hmm. needs to contact. And I think for me, and that was always my thinking, if you if you want assurance that you've actually reached the person, if I send a text, you know, I'm I'm waiting to know, did they see it or whatever? Mm. Whereas if I make a call and I actually make contact, then I know that the person knows in the moment. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's, it may be um, a lot less popular and it may phase out, uh, you know, to some extent, but I don't think it ever, you know, disappear mm. as, because it, it'll always be an option. But definitely there is a huge increase in the other options and, and people finding that it's, um, you know, a, a lot easier on their lives and uh, taking into account the other difficulties that they may have in speaking on the phone. It was a very interesting response and it was a huge learning for me. And actually, I, I, I really do think it has changed my thinking around it. Mm. One person went to a huge um, uh, effort to send me a seven-point plan that what? they used to prepare for a call. Really? And when I read this through, you know, it, it was everything uh, to include, will the person that you're calling actually answer? And if not, prepare for the contingency of somebody else answering. Yeah. And then, you know, um, what the message was, the possibilities of, you know, um, them looking for different information, how, even if, they, if they're if ringing and they pick up very, you know, sometimes you only ring and you're there's only two rings, somebody will pick up the phone, preparing for that. When I re- was reading this seven-point plan, I myself could feel the stress, could feel the anxiety, could look at the length the person went to prepare for one call. Yeah, that's incredible. Saying, then why would you put a person through it? Yeah. Why would they put themselves through it? Of course, they should look at all the other platforms and and take an alternative rather than putting themselves to this huge stressful situation. And you know, and some people say they manage professionally because they have to, but socially. Yeah, they're not using the phone. And as you say, if you want a takeaway, if most things in life now, mm. you, you know, there is the option to go online, use the app, um, you know, and so they'll use all of the other um, uh, things available to them rather than pick up the phone. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? It's just a reflection of our busy lives, isn't it, really? Yes. 
Uh, listen, Jackie, thanks so much for taking the call and uh, hopefully we'll be able to stay in touch on the phone. <laughs> it is nice, nice to have a woman at the helm today, Fiona. Thank you. <laughs> and I just want to say a quick congratulations to Asher as well. It's wonderful to hear that, um, you know, uh, she, she has gone into her position after 20 years of uh, yeah. having a mail. So it, it, it is wonderful. It is brilliant, yeah. Listen, thanks so much, Jackie. Talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Thank you. And coming up after 10 is the government's plan to pay people to move out of cities and into rural towns and villages, a realistic one. The number again, one 996 text or WhatsApp 083 396 The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Corks 96 FM. Welcome back to Friday's Opinion Line. Fiona sitting in for PJ today. Lots of comments coming in on the topics that we discussed in the first hour. In relation to telephone calls, um, a caller said a friend of mine was interviewing about 30 people for a position and she said only about two of them were able to communicate properly. It's rampant. That's actually very sad. Um, And Hannah says, I think telephone calls are very invasive, especially at certain times of day. I always start a call with, can you talk? And I think everyone should. In relation to the COVID-19 and congregations, Michael emailed, welcome to the opinion line, Fiona. No doubt you'll do an excellent job. Thanks very much, Michael. Um, You have an excellent support team with you. And I I do have to say thanks to Wayne and Terry and Fergal today. Um, He says, we hear many expressions of concern for the younger people and how this lockdown is affecting them. But what about the elderly? Many are living alone, confined to their homes. The only outlet for some would have been visits to day centres, which are now closed. This is an element of society we should also express concern. Not only the pampered brats causing disruption to society and many act like they have an entitlement to do so. Another comment on that issue in terms of the gathering at the lock. Old age pensioners are afraid to sit outside their door when it is so warm. People have no enjoyment sitting outside their door with people peeing in front of them. Again, that's very sad uh, to hear that people are actually doing that. Uh, right, so next uh, we're going to um, uh, the next caller there now. Uh, an expert group on rapid testing has recommended that self-administered antigen testing should be rolled out across a number of different settings. Joining me now is Professor Kingston Mills of TCD. Professor Mills, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Fiona. Uh, Professor Mills, why is this being recommended and why now? Right, so um, what the report has recommended is the use of rapid testing as an adjunct to the current PCR testing which is used for the the confirming diagnosis of COVID-19. So what these rapid tests um, do is they, as their name implies, they're much quicker than PCR and they're used as, as a way of picking up asymptomatic, so people who don't have symptoms of the disease and they would be used in settings such as schools, universities, workplaces, even for going to sporting and um, social events. They've already been um, talked about using it, for example, in um, Wembley Stadium in London for the FA Cup final on the 15th of May. They're considering allowing 10,000 people into the stadium if everybody gets tested and shown to be negative. The big deal about these is the, the versions of it can be done in 10 minutes based on a saliva sample and you can get a result straight away knowing whether you're, you're, you're positive or, t- or, or negative. And are they self-administered or what way does it work? Right, so there's two types of, of, of rapid testing. There's one that are a bit like pregnancy tests. 
and these right. are these can be self-administered. In other words, somebody takes a saliva sample or a nasal swab, not the anterior nasal swab that you see people pushing down the back of people's throats. These are little like a cotton wool bulb up, up in your nose, and you and you rub it around, you put it into some medium, and then pour some of that medium onto the strip. And if it, if if, it, if, it, if a stripe comes up on it, you'll know that you're positive. Like like, like doing a pregnancy test. Right. So that can be done in the person's home. It can be done in the workforce. It can be done also by professionals. There was a a study done in the UK in Liverpool where they mass tested a large number of people. When people did it themselves, the sensitivity, the accuracy of the test was around 60%. But when the professionals did it, the accuracy was over 85 up to 90%. So, uh, you know, it, it takes a bit of sort of little bit of training mm-hmm. to get used to doing it. But the, 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 the real advantage of these is they would pick up people who wouldn't otherwise be picked up um, um, through, because people, right Right now, the only people that are tested by PCR are either people who have symptoms or people who have contact with those that have symptoms. But if people are going to be carrying out these tests on themselves, is there a risk that there would be uh, a lot of false negatives as a result? I mean, there will be some false negatives, but the sort of... of, sense of it is that even if there are false negatives it doesn't matter because those people if, if it wasn't for the test they wouldn't be tested at all so they would never have been picked up so so if you pick up most of the people that are asymptomatic and that are positive well that's a huge benefit because you're taking people out of the system that are infected and could potentially pass it on to others remember an asymptomatic can transmit the virus to somebody else who can then become the person who receives it symptomatic and, and, and if that's an older person, there's really a serious risk. So asymptomatics are a source of spread of the virus, even though themselves they don't have any symptoms. And that's important to get those people identified and out of circulation. And where would these tests be used then? Like, would it be mainly for schools? Would it be for, like, large workplaces? Or would it be for things like going to gigs? Yeah, I mean, all of those. So right now, the universities, um, some of them, Trinity, where I am, are currently using um, a lamp test. It's another version of, of, of another form of rapid testing. It's not the, it's not the strip pregnancy type test. It's a more sophisticated, um, but it's quicker than PCR. It's about, it takes about half an hour to do. Um, and that's already been done in Trinity. UCC and Cork are, are doing um, testing. There's a guy there called John McSharry who is, is, is heading that. And um, Mary Hogan is also involved in Cork. And um, in Galway, there's a group doing it in the university. Some of businesses are already doing it. It's already been done by the HSC in meat processing units on a periodic basis. And the plan, the suggestion is that, that the report made, we made in the report that it would be rolled out to schools, all large businesses, um, and some businesses are already doing it. They're testing their, fo- their workforce before they go to work on a Monday morning. They go in, and everybody, before they actually go on the premises, they, they get tested, and if they're negative, they can go to work. If they're not, they have to go. If they're positive, they have to be then confirmed by PCR, and then they will be sort of put in isolation. So, so this is a means of enabling business to get back in action and, and schools to, to, to return safely and for universities as well. So, so it's, it's a broad application of this that we're suggesting. Is there a risk that this would provide people with a, a false sense of security though? 
I mean, that's always a risk with the, with these sort of things. But I think um, um, I think if it's explained to people, this is not a hundred percent sensitive. That you know, you just because you're negative doesn't necessarily mean in, in a day or two that you mightn't present as positive. So I think people, you know, if they're, if they're educated into the, the, the benefits, but also the sort of the, the shortcomings of this, then people won't see it as a as a way of of, of behaving in a way that they wouldn't wouldn't do otherwise. So, and it's the same with vaccination. I mean, none of the vaccines are 100% effective. Um, there are certain, and yet it might change people's behaviour if they've been vaccinated, but there are a certain number of people who are vaccinated who won't be protected. And mm. um, that's, the, that, that's the risk with all of these modalities in, term, in terms of reducing the infection. So do you think that this will become part and parcel of the way uh, society needs to work going forward, even after the vast majority of the people are vaccinated? Well, I don't know. I think the, the, the major benefit is up until all the people are vaccinated, because um, I, I would hope uh, that after everyone is vaccinated, the, the, the transmission of this virus will be significantly reduced. There was a study done in the US that was reported in the last few days um, where, where they, they looked as a significant thousands of people who had been vaccinated with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine and they did um, PCR testing and once a week and to look to see whether it prevented infection because all the trials had only looked at the preventive disease. And this study showed that two doses of either of those vaccines prevented 90% of people from getting infected and one dose prevented 80% of people getting infected. So that was really good news showing mm-hmm. that these vaccines do prevent transmission. So the bottom line is that um, you know we'd expect that if the majority of the population is immunised, then you know the transmission of the virus is going to be substantially reduced. So the need for this sort of measure then becomes less um, important. But um, there obviously will be a proportion of population who won't get vaccinated or won't want to get vaccinated, and, th- and then these measures would be still useful for for detecting the virus in that population. And Professor Mills, just speaking of the vaccine rollout, um, do you think that there's still um, a risk from variants and that this is a real um, challenge that we have to overcome here, even with the vaccination programme? Yeah, it's the biggest risk we're facing, really. I mean, the the UK variant um, is already here and it's the dominant over 90% of the cases are, are from that variant now. So, But, but the, the, all the evidence suggests that the, the vaccines still work against that variant, albeit maybe slightly reduced compared with the original variant, but they work. Um, that's not the case with the South African and Brazilian variants where there's a drop in efficacy of the vaccines for the studies that have been done to date. So that's a big worry. And that's why the, you know, the, the measures to stop the importation of the those two strains or any any other strains that might emerge are really important because they do pose the biggest threat to the success of the vaccines. So in your own opinion, do you think that we're going to have a summer of uh, socialising and concerts and gigs? I I don't think we're going to have a summer, a a normal summer, but Mm. I would hope that we will have a a summer where at least, uh, you know, hopefully some parts of our entertainment industry will be open. And if we follow the suit of the countries, like for Denmark, for example, um, where the European football, um, they're in, mm. in the Euro 2020, they're going to have spectators, they're planning to have spectators in June at right. their events, So, which is fantastic news. And the UK as well, I, mean, I mentioned um, Wembley, you mm. know, they're, they're going to have 10,000 spectators there. 
at, at, um, at, at, at the FA Cup final on the 15th of May. That's not long away. So, I mean, the UK is well ahead of us in the vaccine rollout, but, um, you know, we're, we're a couple of months behind. But hopefully we catch up and get back to, to doing things we all want to do again involving sport and social activity. I don't think we'll be going on foreign travel um, for our holidays this summer. I think it's very unlikely. Um, I think holidays in Ireland are, are much more likely. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, you know, by the autumn, most of the adult population if, uh, will be vaccinated. And, and unless the variants are causing a problem, um, you know, that should, uh, you know, season in a much better place. Brilliant. Bit of hope there anyway. Listen, Professor Kingston-Mills, thanks so much for joining us on the Opinion Line today on Cork's 96FM. Thank you. For Have a nice weekend. Thank you. There's a little bit of serendipity here and it's yeah. a little bit unfortunate for him. So his tour was called 2020. The word's 2020. So it's Ronan Keating 2020. Okay. And it's obviously been rescheduled because of COVID. It was meant to happen last year. Okay. It's happening next year. So now it's Ronan Keating 2020 2022. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they've actually called it. For a tour called 2020, you think you'd have seen that coming? <laughs> Casey and Ross in the morning with no DC cars, Blackpool for Skoda in the city, a long-standing tradition in Cork. Open 24-7 at milldc.com. Cork's 96 FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96 FM. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ today. Now, I've been asking you for your recommendations for what to watch this weekend. And we have a few in here from Leanne says, Hi, Fiona, just started the line of duty on RTE Player. Late to the party, but hooked after one episode. Thanks, Leanne. I haven't actually watched that, so I'm even later to the party than you are. Um, but I'm dying to actually see that. John in Hertfordshire, um, who's from Cork. Hi, all the way over there in Hertfordshire, John. Uh, so good series to watch. Some good series to watch on Netflix. The Strange. Danger, Safe, Dairy Girls, Highwaymen, Unforgotten and highly rec- they're all highly recommended and enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your weekend too, John. Thanks very much for all of those. I don't think I've actually seen any of them except for Dairy Girls. So <laughs> I'm going to have a busy weekend of TV watching this weekend. So keep your recommendations coming in. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Now, if you were listening to the Opinion Line on Wednesday, you will have heard Dr. Neve Lynch speaking to PJ about the crazy situation of kids not being able to get measured properly for new shoes. Well, after the government did a U-turn and announced that shoe shops could offer an appointments-only service, shoe shops across Cork have been inundated with calls from mums and dads who are desperate to book their little ones in for a shoe fitting. Now, I'm joined by Eileen Kirby from Kirby Shoes. Hi, Eileen. Good morning. Hi, Fiona. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Eileen, what's it been like since uh, the government made that announcement? Well, we are so delighted. It has been crazy. Um, Phones are hopping, as you can imagine, and they start at seven in the morning and they can go on all night. But look, we're ready. We want to get back to it. And the parents are delighted, you know, that they're delighted that their children can get their feet fitted properly again and that they're able to buy shoes again because kitty's feet grow so fast and it's great to be able to come into a shoe shop and have their feet fitted properly again. We're delighted. 
And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to say to you, like, I'm sure you're delighted to be able to have customers coming back into the shop and having that uh, rapport with the customer. Yeah, no, at the moment it's only going to be limited. Obviously, we're going to have to deal with the the, the government guidelines. But mm-hmm. yeah, we are delighted because we miss we miss our kiddies, we miss our families and we're delighted that everything is going to get back to normal pretty soon. We're very happy about it, to be honest, because um, children, like children need to get their feet fitted properly, you mm-hmm. know. And, you know, I mean, if if a child comes into the shop here they, in Balancholic, they have to try on... Uh, maybe so many different styles and brands before we get the right shoe. You know, we like, say, one child might, a Ricosta or a Geox shoe might do them, and or that, that those styles might not suit the next child, and we might have to go on to Pavlovsky start right or something else. Mm. And, you know, and it can be a while before you get the right style and fitting for the child. So and how damaging is it for children if they it, don't have the right size of a shoe? It can be quite damaging on a child's foot. It can, I mean, it can cause the obvious things like blisters and, you know, sore toes and cramped feet. And, but it can have effect on backs and on posture in later life. I mean, I've had kids come in and mums have said, like, he's suffering from back pain. It's, it's actually due to bad. The fact the child might need special treatment from, you know, a paediatrician to get the orthotics in their shoes. And we help them with that. You know, we, we, we advise them to go and see those people. And, you know, because it can have effect on their posture and on their backs in later life. That's for sure. And so people have to make an appointment, so they ring the shop and then they, they book in for, what is it, like 15-minute slot or something? That's what we're trying to do. Um, like, yeah, we we have, like, Ian is in the shop all the time and we're going to have one of our girls back as well just to give him some help as well, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, we're doing slots. Um, we tried to get online bookings, but it, it crashed on us, to be honest. You know, okay. there was, it, we just couldn't, it just crashed straight away. So we're having, we're doing phones at the moment. And um, that is going crazy as well. But look, we're dealing with it anyway. We're, but we are asking people to be patient with us, mm-hmm. you know, while we try to get back to everyone, because we're just going to do it that way and, and get everyone sorted. And we will eventually. And it's strictly know. children's shoes, no sneaky shoes for mum and dad when they go in. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we can't do that. <laughs> Listen, Eileen, thanks so much for but joining us. we are us. doing ladies and we are doing men's online Brilliant. And we have a lovely selection of ladies' shoes in. If anyone wants to go on to Kirby's.ie <laughs> and check out our styles, we have a lovely range of shoes in. Get the plug in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah. And, it, you know, and we're on the phone. And, yeah, we, there, it, we have, honestly, a fantastic range of children's shoes online as well. If anybody wants to go and have a look at them. They're Brilliant. really lovely. Oh, great. So, <laughs> smiling. Thanks and for listen, joining us. Fiona, good luck to you. And thanks for ringing us. And we're delighted. Thank you. Thanks very now. much. Bye-bye. And best luck over the next few days. Thanks a million. Now, um, earlier this week, the government rolled out its Rural Future Plan. In short, they plan to offer financial sweeteners to workers to persuade them to relocate from big cities like Dublin and Cork to rural towns and communities. But is it really realistic and does the infrastructure exist to make it a worthwhile move? In a moment, I'll be speaking to a senior government minister on the idea. But first, I've been to Ballydehob in West Cork to meet Caroline O'Donnell, who gave up the city rat race eight years ago. You and Joe decided to move from the city to Bali Dahab about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell me a little bit about why you decided to move and what it was like moving? 
Um, so yeah, we moved uh, eight years ago last week because both of us came from um, like rural communities. Uh, like I come from West Kerry, a place called Amaskol, and Joe is from McCroom, uh, just outside McCroom. And I think both of us sort of knew without really saying it too much that we always did want to go back um, to living in the countryside, mm. particularly ne- near the sea. Um, you know, we would have been kind of going there at the weekends and everything like that. And we'd both been in the cities, different cities um, in Ireland and abroad for, for a long time. And I suppose we were also at the age where, yeah, we were thinking about if we were to have a family that, you know, we would both be uh, more inclined to, to, to raise kids in the country countryside. Um, so Joe had a family connection to West Cork. Uh, so we came down here and then it just uh, took over. Uh, we fell into helping out a family business and um, uh, we loved Ballydahab from the outset and we hadn't spent much, spent much time here before we moved down. And very quickly we got very busy with what we were doing here with the business and with the house that we moved into, like just getting a poly tunnel we got uh two pigs uh we did uh we got chickens uh we did the whole shebang like uh you know the good life <laughs> series we stopped short at uh wearing dungarees around the place but yeah no we we went in and we loved it like there there was never a time i remember um us being like, oh God, I'd love a mad night out now in the city or whatever. Because I suppose we were still doing that in that we didn't have kids at the time. And if we did want to go to something, we'd head up to Cork or whatever. But for the most part, we were just busy down here. There was always something going on. It's a really active, uh, creative community. And uh, our life very much revolved around the family business, the pub. And then as the live music venue took off and grew, you know, we were we were stuck in that a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, we were just, I suppose, ready for it. And it was a great place to move, a uh, great uh, lifestyle. I suppose there was a, a period of time where we were living kind of in two places and that we were both still commuting up to the city. And that was a struggle, the hour and a half up and down, um, you know, each way. That that was hard to do that. And you'd be, you know, exhausted from it. And but then and the other then pressure of, I suppose, trying to make a living and build up a business down here. Um, you know, it's 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 probably the hardest thing about living down. Or sorry, not the hardest thing, but it, it's the challenge you have to take on board. It's not as straightforward uh, down here. You know, um, with broadband, isn't great mm. in all areas. It's it's very hit or miss. So um, hopefully that will improve and and people will have that option then to work from home. Is it easy to just get up and go? <laughs> I suppose it's very much depends on where you're at. Um, yourself with your life as well Mm. like you know I think back if I had moved when I was in my 20s would I have been a bit uh, bored Um, you know I mightn't have been I might have been more interested in going out 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 as they say (laughs) you know like you know you're not really going to nightclubs down here so much I think there is one in Skibbereen or there was I'm not sure but um, you know if, if that was more your thing and then I suppose it does depend on where you're moving to in the countryside mm. like not all towns villages are the same we've been very fortunate like with Ballydahab and West Cork in general like there, there's always something going on like there's there's three great music venues there's there's like um, there's galleries there's there's loads of kind of 
um, events and festivals. Then there is the aspect of, of the broadband. You need you need to make sure you know if, if that's what your job requires and so on. You're here eight years now. Yeah. Do you have any regrets about the move? Um, no. Not at all. Like as in, I yeah, I feel like I, I feel like we sort of came home when we moved down here. It was right for us at the time, and like I don't know if we'll stay here for forever. I think if anything, the last year has shown you is that things change <laughs> and the world flips around. But uh, we're raising our kids here, and we love the the communities that we live in, um, in Lachine and where we work, which is in Ballydahab, and you know, really great people um, to be around. And, and so much going on and, and everything. We're we're very happy. And then it's just so gorgeous down here. Like it's the we live right next to Roaring Water Bay and it's just stunning like the kayaking the swimming everything uh, like the only problem is that uh, generally when it's nice weather you're working really hard <laughs> so you're missing it out and you're just watching all the tourists and visitors enjoying it um, but no it's great no regrets about coming down at all and that was Caroline O'Donnell who relocated from Cork City to Bally de Hob. and I'm joined now by Minister Helen McEntee Minister you're very welcome to the Opinion Line this morning Good morning, Fiona. Hi, how are things? Good, good. Minister, we just heard there from Caroline who moved from Cork City to West Cork eight years ago and obviously she's saying she has no regrets, but you're hoping to encourage more people to do just that with this uh, Rural Future Plan. And can you remind us of the details of that, please? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm delighted to hear that Caroline has has, um, has made a smooth transition and, and doesn't regret her decision. And I think a lot of people, particularly in the last year we've seen, are moving back home moving back to to rural Ireland from the cities and obviously what we want to do is make sure that when people move home that they're supported in their work um, and that they're they're happy in their communities. So just this week, uh, government led by Heather Humphreys, who's our Minister for Rural Ireland, um, developed or or published a five-year strategy setting out essentially a blueprint for the development of rural Ireland over the next five years. So it has about 150 commitments. It's across all government departments. So everybody from our, our Department of Communications, where you mentioned broadband there, to to our Heritage Gales of my own department as well. And really what it aims to do is address the challenges that currently exist, um, mm. but also to deliver new opportunities. And I think with COVID-19 in particular, um, you know, there, there's there's a recovery that will need to take place across the country, in particular in rural Ireland. But at the same time, it has presented huge opportunities. We've seen, and I can say this even myself with friends, huge amount of people moving home, working from home, um, you know, deciding to, to, to take that leap. And what we need to make sure is that they're supported in doing that uh, and that obviously their, their communities are supported as well. So it has everything from incentives on revitalising our rural towns and villages, um, digital connectivity so broadband it looks at jobs obviously creating jobs where, where people are not moving home with jobs looking for 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 home working but also um remote working as well for those who do have jobs so there's a, there's a huge amount involved in it it's a five-year plan and, and obviously will take time to, to roll out but it's supported by everything from our rural regeneration fund which is a, a billion euro fund that we've announced we have significant funding being announced for uh, be it leader programmes, be it our, our um, greenways and cycleways. So th- there's lots of plans that are now coming together to support and encourage people to live in rural Ireland. Um, and, and really, it's, it's, it's such an ambitious plan and I think will make a huge difference and transform how we live in rural Ireland over the coming years. 
Minister, you mentioned broadband and it's one of the challenges that Caroline mentioned in her interview as well. Like, can we, you know, the broadband is not um, up to scratch yet, really, um, in, in many parts of rural Ireland. So, do you know, is this plan just a pipe dream at the minute or, you know, can we encourage people to move to these areas where there isn't sufficient broadband? Well, what I would say is, and, and I, I think I have the, the right name, I think the O'Connor family from Caroline were the first family to be connected mm. to the National Broadband Plan. So it has started, it's being rolled out. Um, we have a timeline to try and have 90% of, of all of the homes who are included in the plan done by the end of this government. But actually what we're trying to do is bring that forward even more. But just to maybe to, to get into people's minds, what we're talking about here is is laying a length of cable that could be wrapped around the world four times. So it's, it's quite a significant plan. It, 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 it's akin to, I think, the rural electrification of Ireland again. For Cork specifically, I think you probably do have an above average uh, percentage to be covered. So about 29% of, of all of the homes or premises or businesses are going to be connected through the National Broadband Plan. Um, and that means obviously making sure we have connection points. It needs making sure that all of the groundwork is done. And that has started. So what I would say to people is the work has started. The ambition is by the end of this year, even with COVID and, and all of the delays, we'll have 70,000 homes and premises and business across the country and following that every year you'll have about 100,000 so you know we're, we're starting to see people on the ground getting connected that will continue but we're actually now looking to, to bring the plan forward even more to speed it up quicker and to try and get everybody done uh, by the end of this current government which as we know hopefully will, will last for the next three and a half years and um, so it's quite an ambitious plan but progress is being made and, and it's, it's I think working so far where we don't and, and you mentioned I suppose and I mentioned earlier about people who who need it for work mm. not everybody will come in under the broadband plan so not everybody will have high speed broadband and this is where the, the, the hubs are really important and that's a really big part of this rural plan but also the the uh, remote working plan that Artonish published only a few weeks ago it's about making sure that people who maybe don't want to work at home as well who want to have a, a different environment to get out of the home that they have a local hub that they can work in and again I think actually uh, Ludgate Hub in, in Skibbereen is probably mm. one of the flagship examples locally of how that can work and how positive it can be and you're, you're, you're in a dynamic environment and, and there are lots of other services supporting you as well as just the broadband so it, as I said it, it, it's really ambitious but we're, we're seeing already the examples that are starting to happen and how positive they are and it's about just keeping that momentum going. But why make this announcement now? Would it not have made more sense or would it not have been better to have the high-speed broadband in place everywhere before announcing this grand plan to move more workers to rural communities? Well, as I've just outlined, the, the overall implementation of the broadband plan is, is going to take a number of years and I don't think anybody wants us to wait that long. But what's very clear is that you do have... Um, a huge amount of people who are already connected. Um, we've seen a lot of people where we never thought it would be the case working from home uh, in businesses where they're being supported by their employers and their employees. So it's about, you know, harnessing what we have where we don't have or where we mightn't have those high-speed broadband connections immediately that we're developing hubs where they do have access to it. But it's also about other incentives as well. So yesterday for the first time, people now legally have a right to disconnect. So that's where you're working at home, where like all of us, we've been in a situation that you're you're on your phone from when you wake up to maybe when you go to bed at night and that's not healthy. So there is a legal right engaging with your employer to disconnect. But also our Minister for Finance in this year's budget is going to be looking at further tax incentives 
for employees and employers where they're working at home or working remotely in different types of hubs. Uh, you also have something which, which Minister Humphreys is looking at, um, which is a relocation grant. It's actually very similar to an incentive that was used in the US when they were trying to entice tech companies and remote workers to relocate and to work in rural parts um, of, of the state. So this is, a, again, more incentives to try and encourage people to get home. So it's, it's not just about broadband, obviously, that's, that's hugely important, but it's about how can we support people in other ways. And then everything from, you know, investing in our roads, making sure we have enough school places, making sure that, you know, we have enough for people to do. And, and you know, Caroline talked about all of the activities that are happening in her area. So it's about investing in the the, the local culture and heritage and tourism as well. Um, so, as I said, there, there's a lot in this plan and it's really about creating safe, vibrant communities for everybody. You mentioned schools and infrastructure there. Um, here in East Cork, for example, there is already a lack of school places in that area. So encouraging more people to move to rural communities like that, won't that exacerbate issues like access to school places? Well, it, it's an area that we need to continue investing in. Um, and if you look at the, the National Development Plan, which we're updating our plan again later this year, there is almost, I, I think, about £750 million that is specific in that plan for schools. So it's our primary schools, our secondary schools. It's looking at our special education, um, our autism units. It, it's, you know, it, it's looking at where are the gaps, where are the populations, how can we plan for the future, particularly as we're encouraging and trying to encourage more people to move out of some of our towns and cities, while at the same time obviously keeping our towns and cities vibrant as well. Um, and the same goes for our, our local and our regional roads. I, I come from a county in Meath where we have a huge amount of small and local roads and obviously that takes a huge amount of investment. Um, so this year alone you, you, you have over £550 million being invested in our local and our rural roads um, and quite a significant amount of that is, is going to Cork. You have over £76 million of that going to Cork alone. So there's a lot of investment happening and it's, it's about maintaining and it's about improving and it's about always trying to, to think ahead to plan ahead and, and to, to prepare and um, that's what we're trying to do with all of these plans and bringing them together. Minister, uh, can I just move on to the issue of vaccines and in particular the issue of vaccines for the guards? Uh, the two unions that represent members of Angarda Siakona are asking for an urgent meeting to discuss their unhappiness over the changes that they mean um, that, they that they won't be priorities. You are the Justice Minister. Does that seem fair to you that they're not being prioritised in the vaccine rollout programme? Well, look, I've, I've met with the unions um, in the last two weeks, some of them as recently as this week, and I was always very clear and, and, and very clear in saying to them that I wanted them to be vaccinated as quickly as possible. Now, I have always, and this government has always been guided by the advice from our clinical experts, from our, our medical experts and, and those who have been setting out the vaccination programme and what they have said to us in in only the last few days is that we have been obviously moving through the various different categories, those who are most vulnerable, um, our frontline healthcare workers, those who are over 70, and we're now vaccinating those who have underlying health conditions and, and who are very high risk due to illness. What the groups are saying, so NIAC and NEFIS, they're the two teams that have been developing this programme, is that the most effective way, the most efficient way, the most transparent way now to continue with this program is by doing it on an age basis so that somebody who is 55 plus or maybe 50 
is about six times more likely to end up in hospital or to be seriously ill from COVID-19 than a 25-year-old or a 20-year-old. And it's very hard to ignore that advice when you're getting it. I, I, I completely understand um, the Garda unions and, and other groups who are anticipating or expecting a particular timeline or to be part of a particular group that they're, you know, that, that this change has obviously come as a shock. As I've said, we've only received this information in the last few days. Mm. But I sincerely hope that we will have a briefing today, actually, um, with our health teams, with the Garda unions, to be able to go through this and to explain this. What, what I want, and I think everybody wants, is that people are vaccinated as quickly as possible. And as we move into the, well, we're, we're in the month of April now, we're looking at close to a million vaccinations happening, which is the entire amount less less or just over the entire amount that have been done in the first three months and the same again in May, the same again in June. So we're really going to see a massive ramping up of the vaccination programme. And by June, 80% of adults who want a vaccination will have received their first one. So we're making huge strides. I, I understand there's maybe frustration this week with the change in direction, but we have to be guided by advice. We have to be guided by what is the best and the most efficient and the most effective way of rolling out this vaccination programme. So there is a briefing later on today, so we might hear more from that as the day goes on. Um, Minister, another issue that um, matters hugely here to our listeners on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM is the restrictions around partner support at maternity hospitals. There was no mention of anything around that in the Taoiseach's announcement this week. Are expectant mothers' voices and concerns not being taken seriously, do you think? They are absolutely and, and I say this as one myself and, mm. and I had a scan this week. I, I wasn't able to have my husband with me and he hasn't been at any scan unfortunately with me so I know how difficult this is and I can, um, I think in particular where where you have something that maybe goes wrong or where you have uh, bad news that, that, that is delivered to a, a couple or to a mother, it's really important that they have that support. I do accept the reason why we, we have had to to hold back and why we haven't been allowed our partners in because we're keeping people safe and it's not just our frontline healthcare workers most of whom are vaccinated now but it's about keeping other pregnant women other expectant mothers and and people who are in our hospitals safe but i really do hope i mean now that our frontline healthcare workers have been vaccinated the more people are vaccinated i really do hope that our clinical teams and, and experts will say to us that this is now safe to do so and that we can lift it as soon as possible. So just to reassure people, this this is not an issue that has been forgotten of. I'm, I'm very, very conscious of it myself because of the situation I'm in. I know how difficult it is, but it really is it's about keeping everybody safe, not just our frontline healthcare workers. It's about keeping mommy safe. Um, and as soon as we, we are given the advice that it is safe to do so, I, I hope that it can be lifted. Brilliant. Thanks, you. Thanks, Minister. Thanks very much for that. And listen, congratulations. And uh, best of luck with everything with the baby. Thanks a million, Fiona. Thank you. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on side. Hi, it's Michael with an update on Cork's entertainment. Following their appearance on last Friday's Late Late Show, Rising Irish Quartet Inhaler have announced a rescheduled show for Cypress Avenue on Thursday, December 16th. Fans of the band will also be happy to hear their debut album will be released in July and tickets for the original show remain valid. 
Orchestral Society's online concert program continues in April with a solo performance from Fingin Collins at the Curtis Auditorium. For more details and to check out two concerts already online, go to CorkOrchestralSociety.ie. Access All Areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a rescheduled show coming up or any live streaming events by emailing AAA at 96FM.ie. Access All Areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96 FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996. On Cork's 96 FM. Welcome back to The Opinion Line. Fiona in for PJ. Uh, you can also text us on 083 96 96 96. Now, ordinarily on a Good Friday, it would signal the start of a very busy weekend for our tourism industry here in Cork. Thousands of us would normally be packing up the car for a weekend away or planning a day trip with the kids on Saturday or Sunday to Guardstown or Yall. But for the second year in a row, the industry remains in lockdown. I've been to Ross Carberry to chat with business owners there about the reality of facing into another lost Easter. Grant of the Celtic Boss Hotel here in Ross Carberry. Neil, obviously this hotel has always got a bit of a buzz about it. It's here on the coast and it's lovely and it's a very different scene here today. Yeah, well you can look out the window at the car park and you know the car park's empty. Uh, we've got a handful of staff in uh, dealing with reservations uh, for the summer and dealing with cancellations uh, for those that have realised that June is probably unlikely. Uh, so we've got a, a kind of skeleton team working in plans for the year ahead, but yeah, totally different. <laughs> and are bookings good for the for the summer? Uh, they were, yeah. We had a good run uh, around January, February when people, uh, the families in particular, booked their summer holiday because I think they realised they'd normally book their summer holiday overseas at that time and they realised that when that wouldn't happen, they better get space. Uh, So yeah, it was very good momentum then and then just probably the last two or three weeks it's really dropped off. Um, You know, the phones just stopped ringing one week when there was one of the the weeks where there was a wee bit of kind of deflation in the market where people were not seeing the end of it. The phones stopped ringing and the bookings are are trickling in online but they're still coming in, thank God. So look, we've got a good base business for the summer by the looks of things. What kind of an impact do these ongoing lockdowns have on an area like like Ross Carberry that is dependent on visitors and the tourism sector. Uh, like one, uh, this was actually last year during the lockdown last year, and I never would have thought about it. Uh, when we opened, we opened a food truck to do takeaway food and coffees, and a guest came to me one day and said, "Thank you so much for opening." And I was kind of like, "What do you mean?" You know, I, you know, I, I don't understand that. Yeah. And he said, "Because we've driven past this hotel that's always busy, and it's in our town, and it's been." the lights off it's been depressing and it brings us down and he said seeing a bit of life here again gives us all hope and it kind of blew me away because I didn't think of that as being the impact of a hotel on the main roads in the town you know has that people you know draw off us when they, when they see us operating and um, so I think you know in terms of employment we're a fraction of the team we would have had you know we would at the peak we would have had 126 staff a couple of years ago in the summer and I think we peaked this year at about 80 
you know, and uh, at this moment in time, we've we've been losing people, you know, uh, sadly, in some key positions because they've moved to other industries or they, they've just wanted to be, have a bit of certainty and they feel hospitality is not certain. Um, and for the ones that are still here, you know, they're, it's not the purpose that they're they're programmed for. You know, they're mm. programmed to be here to serve guests, and they're not doing that. So I, I, it has a massive effect on the team that live locally and the team that we cannot give work to at the moment. And I think on the public because they're used to you know the hotel bringing in uh, people to the region to you know use the restaurants and use the pubs and the pubs obviously aren't open and haven't been open for for the vast majority of the last year so I think it has a big impact yeah. Kate Witcherly, the owner of the Celtic Cottages here in Ross Carberry. Kate um, obviously it's Easter and we have like the Easter two week break would this normally be a busy time of the year for you? Yes absolutely Fiona welcome to Ross Carberry. It would of course be a busy time especially um, Easter weekend the bank holiday always the bank holidays are strong down here before you get into the holiday summer season yes so being closed what kind of an impact is that having on your business i don't have a business very simply i just don't have one um i mean it's been tough it's been tough for everybody uh, but business wise if we're in an unknown mm. i don't have a business currently and do you have bookings for the summer months? Yes, absolutely. Uh, summer down here is always strong, which is great. Um, and predominantly Irish Irish uh, uh, tourists. Mm. Uh, July and August are always extremely strong. And they're currently, I have bookings and I'm fully booked for the summer. Is there a fear that you might have to cancel a lot of those bookings? Yes, absolutely. Um, I am currently, I've taken bookings for June um, in the hope that we'll be open for June. Um, I'm currently holding bookings in good faith. I'm not taking money in mm. um, because for myself and for the customer, I don't want to take a deposit to then find out I have to refund this deposit. And that's 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 a bit stressful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't currently have an um, income on the business. If we can get, I mean, as I said, I'm hoping for June. If we can get July, mm. That's our busy time. That's our peak rate. We'll we'll be okay. But we have prep to do before that. Yeah. Uh, we can't just like go in and turn on the light. Um, so and we need to line up staff. Next year, I think, and I've seen it in a little bit in the last few weeks with inquiries. I think families are going to come together, who are from abroad and coming in, and want to catch up. And I think. The, a family, the family gathering will come back into tourism. I'm hoping, and I, I can feel it out there, that people will do family holidays next year, groups of families. And we're, we'll be ready to welcome people here. We cannot wait to have all our regulars back, have new people to Roscarbury, because um, it's such a beautiful place. My name is Mark Jennings, and we run Pilgrim's Restaurant, myself and my partner, Sarah Jane Pierce, in Roscarbury. And how have things been over the last year? Yeah, it's been different obviously (laughs) it's different for everybody and we've been running a pilgrims pickup and provisions now for like all of 12 months apart from last summer well like 12 months and two weeks of doing takeaways through pilgrims which has been different and do you miss the restaurant atmosphere yeah of course yeah yeah i actually thought i didn't wouldn't but you do miss the background noise you miss having a coffee machine on you miss having a few more staff coming in and having a little bit more staff 
atmosphere and buzz around the place. Um, it's 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 a lot lower stress. Let's be honest to run a business without having customers coming in the door at a six o'clock every day. But yeah, at this stage now, I'd be delighted to have some people to sit down on a seat and feed them on spot. It'd be great. Obviously, we don't know yet when restaurants will be allowed to open. Is that a headache in itself, the fact that we haven't been given a date as to when things might reopen in that area? Yeah, I suppose we kind of stopped listening to what was going on there probably after the first lockdown because you'd wreck your head listening to media or the government guidelines and you'd be humming and hawing should we change it to this angle do you think we should get ready to reopen the restaurant for a sit-in dining so it's it's just so speculative and so unchangeable that we just said okay we're doing pilgrims pickup provisions offering local produce from the areas as as a product people can buy or else they can buy their dinners with us and we're like we're doing this until we have clear knowledge of what's going to happen yeah we're looking forward to a few more people coming around again and seeing the other restaurants on the square opening mm-hmm. and a little bit more foot traffic and it would be nice just to have that regular summer atmosphere it would be great that was some business people in Ross Carberry and thanks to everyone who did speak to me there. I have to say it was absolutely amazing to be down by the sea, having lived in the city and not been down near a coast for quite some time. It was just lovely to get that sea air and I think, um, you know, it's really made me <laughs> appreciate the smaller things in life. So I think once uh, we're allowed to travel within our five kilometres, I am going straight to the beach. Um, anyway, uh, we have a couple more calls and texts coming in, um, in particular to the large gathering and antisocial behaviour. A caller on the phone said there was a house party went on yesterday in a private house near the college. The guards called but no one would answer the door for the 30 minutes the guards were trying. They left and as soon as they did people started to run out of the house with their drink. We counted 38 college students leaving the house in fits of laughter. What a disgrace. Finbar also texts to say about drinking in scenic areas. He said if people can bring cans and bottles with them they can take them home again. I couldn't agree more, Finbar. There's nothing worse than seeing a beautiful scenic area with litter scattered all over the pl- the place. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Corks 96FM. Welcome back to the final hour of Friday's Opinion Line with Fiona Corcoran sitting in for PJ today. Some comments to bring you on the idea of more of us relocating to rural communities. One caller says, I moved from the city to the county. We have broadband that isn't very broad at the moment, but Starlink satellite broadband is coming this summer. Game changer for rural living and for anyone considering the move. Margot says, we are in Curraheen Parish, two minutes drive from Bishopstown. We've been told it will be 2023, January, December before we get fibre. We are under city council, we are not rural but yet they have it further out from us. It's very frustrating. Nick says moving from a city to a rural area is not a good idea. I am in a rural area and there's nothing to rent in a 30 mile radius and very little for sale. Where are all these people going to live? Margaret says living outside the city and can't get planning on my own land for my son. If the minister is encouraging rural living, are they going to change the planning structure for young people who simply want to build a home on their family land. Keep the comments coming in on phone one 815 text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696 and email opinion at 96fm.ie. 
Now, for something different, uh, we're going to talk about the decline in bee numbers in Ireland and what we can all do to protect them. Worryingly, more than half of Ireland's bee species have undergone substantial declines in their numbers since 1980. But with some simple steps, we can all do our bit to help reverse that trend. I'm joined now by All-Ireland Pollinator Project Officer Juanita Brown and Tom Mutler of Balancholic Tidy Towns. Juanita, I'll start with you. Good morning. Hi Fiona, thanks for having me. Very good, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Uh, first of all, what is the All-Ireland Pollinator Project and why did you set it up? Yeah, so it was uh, launched first in 2015 and it was launched by two uh, female scientists who just were recording declines over the last few decades, huge declines in bee numbers. So we've 99 uh, different bee species in Ireland, but only one of those is a honeybee and the rest are 21 bumblebees and 77 solitary bees. So it's those ones. The honeybees actually doing okay. There is a misconception that we want more hives or we want more honeybees, but mm. that's not actually the case. It's the wild bees, the bumblebees and solitary bees that are in trouble and a third are at risk of extinction. So it is quite serious for us too because we rely on them to pollinate our crops and fruits and vegetables. So what can we do then individually to help increase the number of bees in Ireland and to protect them? Yeah, and that's what's brilliant about this. It's really easy to help and everyone can help. So we we designed guidelines that are all on pollinators.ie for all different sectors. So if you're a business or a farmer or a school, you know that we have dedicated guidelines and they're all evidence-based actions that you can take to help. So in a garden, it's as simple as leaving a strip of your lawn uh, to allow dandelions (laughs) that a lot of people (laughs) don't like. But dandelions and clover are absolutely amazing for bees. Um, And, you know, it's the cheapest, most cost-effective way to help is to actually just stop mowing as much as you usually do. Um, So instead of mowing every week, every weekend or every two weeks, to actually leave it, let those flowers um, bloom, let the clover... You know, you can still have a neat lawn and you can mow paths through it or you can leave a strip in a certain area in a corner of your garden. Um, and it, that is the, the biggest way to help. It really is. And then if we have hedgerows around our garden, if it's a native hedgerow, you can allow it to bloom. So, you know, there's lots of really simple things. Stop using pesticides. Like, really, you know, we have to move away from using pesticides to tidy up. I think, you know, if you can strim or mow an area instead of spraying around trees, for instance, that's much, much better. Because, again, it's bad for us, too, because it enters our uh, groundwater. I think my husband will love you when he hears that he won't have to mow the garden every week or every second week. But I suppose a lot of people want that kind of clean cut lawn, don't they? They don't they want do. to see the weeds in the grass. Yeah, of course. But it's funny how once you start doing it, what changes, like we do work a lot with tidy tents groups actually and you know, we have an award in the Tidy Towns competition and um, so many of the people involved in Tidy Towns have turned around to us and said, we used to hate dandelions. We used to, you know, it was all about getting rid of them, chopping the heads off them. Mm-hmm. And now they're putting up signs and protecting them. And they actually, once they see all the pollinators landing on them, butterflies, uh, you know, bump, big bumblebees at this time of year, that it changes their perception of it, that it, they are actually wildflowers. Um, we just tend to think of wildflowers as like seed packets, but mm. actually we don't encourage people buying wildflower seeds because you don't know where it's coming from. A lot of it is not native to Ireland and it's going to cause more problems for our native plants, actually. So unfortunately, you know, there are those misconceptions that will go out and plant wildflower seeds. What will grow naturally from the seed bank is actually much more valuable. And in Cork, they had great success, actually, in Middleton last year because people couldn't get out, the council couldn't get out to cut the grass. Um, and because of amazing people in the council, like Gillette Kenny uh, in Middleton, 
they they made these don't mow areas and uh, orchids, bee orchids, which are quite rare in Ireland, but they had 360 on a cycle, like on a ring road on a, where there's a cycle path, 360 mm. of these bee orchids turned up. So really the seed bank is there. It lasts for hundreds of years that you wouldn't know what you'd get in your garden if you just reduce the mowing. It's not all dandelions. You know, you will get birds for trefoil and, you know, South Hills, lots of really nice stuff as well. Yeah, I see Cork City Council are letting the dandelions grow on the South yeah. Link Road. So if anybody sees it becoming really overgrown, it's not that they're lazy. Exactly. It's that they're trying to encourage more bees. Yeah, and you know, it is manpower and fuel as well that you're saving. Like, you know, it's not that the councils are trying to save money. It's that they're, you know, they're getting that message that as a climate action, we shouldn't be actually out mowing as much as we are um, these habitats, unfortunately, you know, people do say, well, what about the cars hitting the bees? And that's true. But unfortunately, it's the the few areas left, you know, the roadside verges are often refuges for wildlife because everything else has become very neat or farming has become more intensive. That we do need those patches, unfortunately, to, you know, to actually sustain them because they are dying of hunger. So bees rely completely on uh, pollen to bring back to the, the nest to feed their larvae. Um, and without it, that's actually why the main reason they're in decline. The All-Ireland Pollinator Project has recently brought out a booklet called Working Together for Biodiversity. If people want to read that, where can they find it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So that's a really nice one because it shows all the different sectors that we're working in. Um, so if they just go on to pollinators.ie and hopefully everything is very easy to find in our resources section, uh, you'll find it and on the front homepage as well. And, and lots of free guidelines, all free to download. You mentioned there that you work with groups and with tidy towns and one of those tidy towns is uh, Ballancolic Tidy Towns and Tom Butler is joining me from there. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You've been listening to what Juanita is saying there. Uh, just in Ballancolic, you are developing some projects like what she was talking about there. Can you just tell me a little bit about some of them and in particular, just that roundabout as you're coming into Ballancolic, there's a, a lovely kind of a, a bee scheme going on there. That's right. Well, I, I suppose what, what Juanita is, is, has been talking about, we've, we've engaged with completely because we would be pushing the, the pollinator plan, in, you know, in a big way throughout. I suppose our mentality for a lot of people, as, as she said, has changed. Um, we were cutting, we, before Tidy Tones is all about neat cut edges and, uh, you know, the, the tidier the better. And we, we've changed. We've seen the way Europe is, is going and their plan there that they're engaging with other groups is making a huge difference and it's changing our, all of our mindsets and hopefully it's changing more. And even when you say city council, the way they're not cutting the, and letting the dandelions grow, what a difference it makes because we're doing the same in Balancholic and you can actually see them coming out of hibernation and feeding on them and it does make a difference. As regards the roundabout, um, that was a, um, an initiative that we, we ourselves, um, Cork City Council and Griffin's Garden Centre took on board and uh, Margaret Griffin had the, the, the foresight to make that roundabout completely for pollinator friendly. Uh, everything on it is pollinator friendly. And the, the bee boxes were just a feature. They're, they're not hives. They're, they're, as they say in Cork, they're Machia ones. But um, they're, they're, they've been taken off this week now to be, to be refurbished and they'll go back on again. But that whole roundabout, and I can honestly tell you that um, when you're on that roundabout in, in the height of the season, and you, you've heard about bees buzzing. It is uh, just unbelievable, the sound that's on there. And to watch, there are literally thousands of bees hopping from plant to plant. And I suppose what we need to, in Balancolic, we've 
developed a pollinator cor- corridor going from um, the, the roundabout there and below it, right through Ballancolic, and the, between the schools, the different organisations, gardens, estates. Um, we've got areas where the, the bees can actually feed as they go through. So the pollinator corridor for us is a, is a huge thing and it's something that we're developing uh, continually. No matter what we're doing, we're developing. Um, the flowers that we put up every year, um, before you just have these lovely blooms and everything else, everything. But every, well, all of our planning now is you'll still have some of those, but you will also have pollinators in them. And that's you're just trying to get the mix uh, for them. But I think it's you know it's something that our whole mindset is changing um and it's it's a good thing it's a very very good thing and i think that the pollinator plan has really has really pushed us and and has taught us a lot so do you think that other communities can follow suit i mean it sounds like there's a a bit of work involved but it's not too taxing to be honest with you there isn't that much work involved because you know um people are if you look at even in homes people go out and they're going out and they're buying uh, bedding plants and they're putting in this, that and the other, a lot of those are not pollinator friendly. Mm. Whereas if they go out and if they pick plants that are that are going to come back every year and that they're going to be there and within the gardens, they don't cut a strip and as one of you said, leave a strip, let, let it develop. Um, let it develop into a, a natural habitat and, you know, put up little um, bird or um, insect boxes around the garden, drill holes in, in, in timbers all these little things make a difference. And if people do go into the, the pollinator plan and even pledge their garden, it would be a huge thing. And let, let, let's, let's all try and do it. It's not, it's not a huge amount of work. It's actually less work in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. these things are coming back annually and they're growing naturally. And the bees are... You can actually stand and watch. And it's actually fascinating to watch the bees at the moment. And they're flitting around on the dandelions and and even the other flowers. And it's it's just you know we've we've all got to change. We've all got to look at how we do things. And pesticides. I think the spraying of edges is something that um, is it's an issue. And I think some contractors are still doing it. But that has to come from that has to come from the estates, the different groups. But in the homes, there should be none of it. A bit of Nothing, nothing not wrong with a bit of hard work and uh, a bit of aging. Or why does it have to be? Um, why does it have to be a, a perfect age? Let it grow naturally. Let it out there. You know. Brilliant. Great, great stuff. So there'll be lots of uh, wild flower gardens all over Cork. Well, not wild flowers, but just wild gardens all over Cork this summer now, hopefully after that. <laughs> Brilliant. Listen, Juanita and Tom, thank you very much for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. You guys ready? Watch out, watch out. Drive home weekdays from four on Cork's 96 FM. Hey, it's a rain. When you're on your way home and stuck in traffic, I've got the best music mix for you to have your own personal karaoke session. Although you never know who might see you. There is a girl in the car behind me. Better sing your out loving life. I'll get you the latest Cork traffic updates with the 96 FM street fleet and some from you too. Buses, buses and buses and rain and cars everywhere. So when you're finished work, I've got you sorted. Talk to you weekdays from four. The big drive home. Let's go business with Ford Lease. Hassle-free vehicle leasing. Search Ford Lease to find out more. The Big Drive Home. On Cork's 96 FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96 FM. 
Welcome back. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ. Just our phone number again is one eight fifty seven one five nine nine six. Text or WhatsApp 0833969696. And the email is opinion at 96fm.ie. Now, imagine being a fit and healthy 28-year-old and your life is turned upside down because you suffer a traumatic brain injury. Well, that's what happened to Ryan Murphy from Middleton, whose family were given the unimaginable news that they should expect the worst and that there wasn't much hope. But despite three weeks in a coma, numerous surgeries and contracting COVID, he's defied the odds and is now recovering in the National Rehabilitation Hospital. But in order to get home, Ryan needs a lot of very specific equipment and a GoFundMe account has been set up to help the family with this. Joining me now is Ryan's sister-in-law, Saoirse Rogers. Saoirse, good morning. Morning, Fiona. Good morning. Uh, Saoirse, obviously um, it's been a very traumatic time for the entire family. Can you just take me back to when you first got that call about Ryan's brain injury and what happened? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, it's been horrific. Um, so on the 27th of October, uh, the family received the call. Um, he was rushed to CUH. Um, basically, the family were told, you know, to expect the worst. He wasn't, he wasn't doing great very scary call to get mm. and then what happened he he had to go through a number of surgeries then didn't he yeah so the traumatic brain injury meant that Ryan would have to have a surgery to relieve the pressure on his skull mm. so that involves just basically removing a bit of his skull um, he was in a coma for three weeks after this um, he came around eventually thank God and he would have needed another surgery then which would involve putting that part of the skull back in. Um, during these surgeries, he also suffered a stroke, infections, and after Christmas, he also contracted COVID. So there was a lot of setbacks, but Ryan, in fairness to him, like he kept, he kept fighting the whole way. And how is he now? Um, he's in the National Rehabilitation Hospital in Dublin, as you said there, and like he is getting there. It's, it's going to be a long road for him. He's only 28 years of age, like he has a long road ahead of him. At the moment, his occupational therapist is working with him on 30 words. Like he has to start, he has to learn everything again. He has to learn how to walk, which probably won't happen for him, unfortunately. Uh, he has to learn how to use his arms again. He has to learn how to speak, how to eat, you know, everything from scratch again. Uh, he's He's really trying and like the CUH and the NRH have been incredible and like he's just really putting his best foot forward but unfortunately like it will be a very very long road for him Do you know how long he'll be in the rehab centre? Uh, there was a provisional date that uh, they would be hoping to get him home like mid July so that's, that's mainly what the funds are for like to get him home uh, mm. comfortably uh, we don't like we're on to relevant authorities to try and find a suitable home for him because his mother's home at the moment is very small and it's not adjustable, unfortunately. So mm. with the help of those authorities, hopefully a house and then the funds will be to adjust the house that hopefully Ryan will be provided with as well as therapy, uh, an accessible car, uh, a suitable wheelchair, uh, just... This, this is what Ryan will need to have any hope of a, a comfortable life when he gets home. And if you don't get all of that, what will, what will happen? So there was talks of um, Ryan needing to be put into care. 
mm. uh, at the moment Ryan needs three full-time carers around the clock um, so there was suggestions that he he may need to be put into care but like that's just it's not an option Ryan's 28 like, his family will not put him into care for the rest of his life like, he has to come home he, he's been through enough he deserves to come home and obviously you set up a GoFundMe campaign to help the family, you know, bring Ryan home, get all of those things in place before he comes home. Um, yeah. If people do want to support the campaign, uh, where can they find it or what can they do? The GoFundMe uh, is online. Ryan Murphy, it was made by his, his oldest brother, Jason. Uh, it's been shared around publicly um, by newspapers, general media and mm. all of us it's it's out there now uh, all we can do is really ask for anything that anyone may have every little help here it really does we know times are tough for everybody but you know if anyone has anything to spare we'd greatly appreciate it and we've shared that GoFundMe on our Twitter as well, on the 96FM Twitter account, if anybody wants to have a look at it there. Uh, sure. Saoirse, listen, we wish you all the best and uh, wish Ryan a speedy recovery here from the Opinion Line on 96FM. Thank Brilliant. you for joining us this morning. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show, The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now, 0833 On Cork's 96FM. Welcome back. Uh, just on the topic of the bees, um, Kate says, if you go out past Ballinhasig, there's a sign that says, excuse the weeds, we are feeding the bees. Love that. Um, just on the broadband issue that we were talking about earlier as well, a texter says, we are living in Lower Killeen's, literally five minutes from Blackpool, and to have no fibre out here is a disgrace. And that seems to be an issue right around the city and, and not just in the county, it seems to be an issue in parts of the city as well. Right, um, one of the positive outcomes of the lockdown is the amount of time that people have dedicated to baking, whether it's banana bread, sourdough or just plain old-fashioned queen cakes for the kids. But one Cork baker whipped up her skills and put them into a book. Patricia O'Flaherty of the Cork Cake Academy is here to tell me about her book, Baking with a Touch of Magic. Patricia O'Flaherty, uh, first of all, congratulations. You've brought out a new book, Baking a Touch of Magic. How's it going? It, it has been fantastic. I honestly didn't anticipate the response I've got. It has been bonkers. Um, I got another message from Jeremy, who's the whiz, whiz kid um, in relation to the design of the book and just the graphics, and he hasn't pulled his hair out. <laughs> because he's been with me from, I'd say it would have been September when I decided, do you know what? I think I'll just put all the recipes I've done, put them into a book, and see if anyone's interested. Yeah. Um, and because I was always keeping an eye on their page, because I do love their quirky side. They've got whimsical, funky sort of designs, and they just have a wacky sense of humour, which is right down my alley. Yeah. And what is the book? What's it about? I know it's called Baking so, a Touch of Magic. So is it just a recipe book, or what is it actually about? Well, basically, it started when I did my Facebook Lives. I started on the 13th of March. And that's when, obviously, the schools closed and we were in lockdown. So I started baking every day for 100 days. Right. So on the 100th day, I had a sort of fanfare. There was a <laughs> machine. We got a gorgeous Kenwood. They sponsored a prize. 
And then I genuinely just had to take a two-week break just from everything because it was, it was overwhelming. Mm. I continued doing all these uh, recipes. I was getting phone calls, text messages, saying, keep it going, kids are doing your cookies, granny's doing soda bread. And people were rekindling their love and passion for baking. And why do you think that is? Because we've heard so much about people baking and especially last year with the whole banana bread phenomenon. And what do you think it is about the last year and lockdown that we've all just taken to baking so much? Oh, my goodness. Do you know, it's like the bistoa. Do you know that waft (laughs) of smells and aromas comes Mm. from a kitchen that just, I don't know, even with my kids, the minute they can smell something in the oven, they're down the stairs. What's cooking? What's baking? It smells delicious. And then there's a conversation. Then they're all chatting in the kitchen. And it's a fabulous connection. So that you've got your kids or family. They are smelling. They're drawn to the kitchen. It's the hub. It's the sort of focus of the house. And I find with baking in general, it's very therapeutic. It's very creative, artistic. So it doesn't make a blind bit of difference what your goodies look like after they're being baked, <laughs> as long as they taste delicious. I mean, I've had some train crashes in my past with some cakes, but the minute you slice it and dive headfirst into a slice of cake, you're just thinking, wow, these are so much better than some of the shop bought cakes. And so the recipes that are in your book, like, are they convoluted, complicated, or are they very simple to follow? Because there's a lot of people out there who might be quite intimidated by the idea of baking. And I know even myself, I'm quite good at cooking, but the baking side of things, maybe not so much. <laughs> so you know I- it's so lovely. It, it really is. Judy. You're so right. It's that I think people have this fear of cracking eggs and mess. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I did have that sort of sing-song chipmunk attitude when I'm coming into a kitchen and it's sort of clean as you go, clean as you go. And as you do clean and as you're baking, it's amazing. You turn around, you have your baked goods baking away in the oven, but you have your kitchen clean because it's all been tidied away as you're going. Take it step by step. But these recipes are idiot proof. (laughs) I love my husband dearly. And I keep saying, even if he can bake from this recipe book, Anyone can bake. <laughs> and come here, are they all, I mean, like I think as well, say, I don't know if it's the same for everybody, but for me, I know that if I bake a chocolate cake or if I bake anything, I'm going to be the one in the house who's going to eat it all. And, um, you know, so I don't want to be in that situation where I'm just constantly eating, which puts me off baking. But like, are there really healthy recipes in your book as well? Or is it just all cakes? Oh, no, absolutely. There are recipes, there are granola bars, there are health treats. And I think people forget when they bake, they look at a giant apple pie, for example, and they get, oh my God, look at all those calories. I couldn't possibly eat the whole thing. But you're not. This is where you take a slice, you go in next door, you're dropping it at somebody's doorstep. So I think what's lovely about baking is the sharing aspect. Mm. You'll find that a lot of people are baking purely just to bake a cake to give away. And that's what I did. So when I was doing my baking, I would literally whip up cupcakes or it could be a Victoria sponge. It could be a quiche. And then I'd off I'd go to the ambulance crew or CUH or to the Mercy and just give them to frontline workers. So that's the way to think that's about lovely. it. Yeah, that's a really nice idea, actually. And do you think that a lot more kids now are getting into baking? And do you think that in the long term, that's going to have really good um, impact on them as they become adults? Absolutely. I think kids should learn. It's a life skill. I mean, they really should learn how to bake bread, how to make delicious pizza. It gives them fantastic confidence. 
My youngest son, Dara, now is a whiz at pizza making. And at this stage now, they just sort of throw it together. And I know it's funny coming from a mother who's a baker. But once they know the steps, they can get so creative with their bakes and their sense of achievement once they finish that bake. And they're so proud. And then they want to try something different. And it's a fabulous stepping stone for kids that have fussy eaters. Get them in the kitchen, even if it's preparing a salad. You'll find little by little, they'll start nibbling on a pepper. They'll start nibbling on a leaf of lettuce. And then suddenly they'll be totally involved in the baking aspect and cooking. And then listen, you've got a chef. You're so chef for life. <laughs> <laughs> and Patricia, you also run the um, Cake Academy down in Carrigaline. Is that still going or has that had to stop? No, because of- un- un- unfortunately now at the moment it's sort of suspended really. And I, I don't know when because it's quite difficult because I can see there are some w- amazing parents that have always supported me from day one, but mm. it's still an anxious time. So this is where you'll find that kid in a sort of enclosed area doing the baking. I'd say it could possibly be the spring of next year before the classes resume normally. Um, because a lot of the time, again, you'll have some kids that are coming down and they might have underlying issues themselves. Right. So that's where you have to be very aware of the students that are participating, that you've got all the health and safety aspects covered before you can open up again with the safe knowledge that they're all um, protected. You you must really miss it though. I know you do do Facebook lives, but like you, it's not the same as actually being in no, the kitchen not. and physically there with the kids. And you know, I think that's the other thing. It is funny because a lot of people think, "Oh my goodness, she's on Facebook. I couldn't handle her. I wish she had a mute button. She couldn't <laughs> possibly be talking like this all the time. She's definitely not that not like that in person." But I am. I think it's the kids' aspect because I am a chipmunk on. I'm bouncing around the kitchen. I draw the energy from the kids, but they send me private messages or they'll send me messages on Facebook. And then you'll find that there are older women sending in recipes that their granny had, but that they're getting lost. And I just didn't want recipes forgotten. So in that book, you've got traditional recipes from my granny. You've got some modern twists on some favorites. You've got some healthy bakes. You've savoury bakes, you've party bakes, (laughs) or most of all, it's just they're easy bakes for everyone. What's your favourite one? (laughs) Is that like asking you what's your favourite, who's your favourite childhood? Your childhood. (laughs) You know, it's very funny. My favourite one, and I know it's sort of old school, it's the Victoria sponge, but it's Mm. the meringue Victoria sponge. So it's baked where you have Victoria sponge batter, and then you have the raw meringue itself on top of the batter and that's baked you need a ladder to eat it it's so high when you fill it with whipped cream and fruit it is divine it sounds absolutely gorgeous and I suppose um, you know next week now we have uh, Easter and um, we're going to have a lot of leftover Easter eggs possibly Um, have you got any ideas for all that chocolate that um, you know like obviously we'll all be gorging on Easter eggs (laughs) on Sunday and and Monday but there could come a point where we've got more leftover and we're a bit sick of them so is there any kind of like have you got any tips that people could do well you know it is funny because I on Facebook I will always throw some recipes and even over the weekend we had a chocolate mousse which is beautiful it's very light and you can fill that in another half of a chocolate shell (laughs) (laughs) so technically you could have eggs for breakfast 
<laughs> but melting chocolate and making sauces, making the Belgian chocolate biscuit cake is gorgeous. That's in the recipe book as well. It's very popular. And then even chocolate itself can actually be melted, made into a ganache, and then truffles. And you could give those away as sort of little sweets, which are also practicing your skills. So the more you bake, the more you practice, and the more ingredients you have, and particularly with chocolate, Chocolate is fantastic because everybody loves chocolate. <laughs> yes. So I think have a play with lots of recipes involved in chocolate because you've nothing to lose. You can share the baking and it's a win-win situation for everyone. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Patricia. And just again, the, the name of the book and where can people get it? The name of the book is Baking with a Touch of Magic. <laughs> and it is available on the book depository. It's available on Amazon. It is available on Waterstones. And there's also an e-Kindle book to make it more affordable as well. Fantastic. Brilliant. Listen, thanks so much for talking to us and have a happy Easter. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me, Jonah. Thank right. you. Cheers. Lovely book there from Patricia. And I'm sure loads of ideas for people if they're bored with the kids at home over the next week. Some nice baking ideas and nice ideas for what to do with leftover Easter eggs. If there is any, I don't know about your house, but uh, there's loads of Easter eggs coming in for my kids and I'm sure I'm going to end up eating most of them over the next couple of days. Uh, Listen, thanks very much to everyone as well for the lovely messages. Um, I was obviously really nervous coming on this morning because it was my first time doing the show. Um, So those uh, messages of support are making me feel less nervous this morning. Michael says, good morning, Fiona. I have to say, loving the show and you're doing a good job. Number one DJ and happy sunny Good Friday to you. Thanks very much, Michael. And I have to say, I can't take any of the praise for the music. That's all down to my colleague, Wayne Hilton, who's on the decks here today. Playing a blinder. Thanks, Wayne. Uh, you're listening to The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM on this gorgeous Friday morning on Side. Now, finally, we're going to finish up the show talking all things chocolate. Given the week to end that's in it, I think that we're all going to be uh, indulging in lots and lots of lovely Easter eggs. I'm joined on the line by Alice and Roberts from Exploding Tree which is also known as uh, Clonic Kilty Chocolates. Alison, welcome to the Opinion Line. Hi Fiona, thanks for having me on. Uh, Alison, it's, a, it's obviously a busy, it's been a busy week I'd imagine for any chocolatier out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm running around like a mad woman at the minute. What, what are people looking for? Are they looking for that kind of like a, an exclusive brand? Are they looking for a better quality of chocolate now? I think, um, especially in the last few years I've seen a real um, shift in people looking more um, at kind of the origins of chocolate and ingredients and just being a bit more you know conscious consumers and wanting especially during the lockdown during the since the pandemic started supporting Irish has become even bigger than ever. And so what are the trends now when it comes to chocolate like are we looking for are people looking for dark chocolate are this are they looking for milk chocolate are they do you know is there a kind of a, a trend that people are more veering towards? I think Easter will always be linked to milk chocolate. Mm. But um, I think Easter also in Ireland, because I'm Canadian originally, but I think in Ireland it's changing a lot where adults are getting involved in Easter too. I think everybody wants an Easter treat this Easter. I don't think it's just for kids anymore. Um, and then, then we're getting into the dark chocolate. I mean, but I specialize in alternative chocolate, so I, I know more about that. But I, I do see a, a massive intake and people thinking more about, you know, they're looking for chocolate that is different. So chocolate maybe like with an alternative dairy or a turn- alternative sweetener or something that's just makes it really special so especially because we're giving things as gifts you know chocolate is one of the the main the main purposes we buy chocolate is to give it as a gift so you want to give somebody a gift that's special and unique and so we're kind of seeing i'm seeing people moving away when they're when they're doing a thoughtful gift buying a thoughtful gift moving away from kind of commercial uh, mass-produced chocolate to looking for something that's been handcrafted with care 
We were having a chat here earlier before we started on the show about like the amount of chocolate Easter eggs that people get now. Um, you know, like I suppose when I was a child, <laughs> I don't know what it was like for you, but you might get one or two. Whereas now, like I just even see with my kids, the neighbours are sending in eggs, the grandparents, the aunties, um, they're asking me for an egg as well. And do you know, like, is there a point where it just gets too much at Easter or should we just let them have as many as they want over Easter because of the weekend that's in it? Well, I think that probably comes down to each family and uh, each each family, the way they run, you know, the way they want to do their family. Mm. In our house, what I love to do is I make like an Easter egg hunt with, uh, with little clues that kind of lead all around and kind of let us think about memories. And then at the end, you know, my son, he's five, he'll find like his Easter egg. And because, you know, we have a chocolate factory in mm. the, that back half of our house, he makes his own Easter egg. So he finds his, his Easter egg and, and that's kind of all part of it, making the egg. So this year I actually did make your own Easter egg kits and that was, they were really popular. So people wanting to like get more involved in the whole process of making their egg and not just about being consuming the chocolate, but, you know, enjoying the whole process from making it to eating it and hiding it and everything. But I think for, I mean, Easter, kids are always going to get lots of Easter eggs at, at Easter time, I think, just shows, especially these years with the pandemic on last year and this year, um, kids are, people really want to send love. They're, they're, everybody's missing each other. So I think mm. if, if every auntie and granny and uncle sends your kids chocolate, just enjoy the love that's coming into your house. You know, don't don't fret about how much chocolate there is. You eat stores for ages, so you can keep it done next Christmas if you want to ration it. <laughs> and I, we were talking to Patricia O'Flaherty there earlier, and she had some good ideas for what to do with that leftover chocolate. And um, I think in my house, if the kids don't eat it, I'll be eating it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think sharing is a big part of, you know, caring. And I think parents shouldn't be left out. We should be able to ask for a little piece of chocolate. I think that's fair. I mean, like we often hear about how chocolate gives us a boost in our mood. Is that true or is it just a kind of a myth that we are making ourselves believe to make ourselves feel better about what we're eating? Like, absolutely. My kind of big passion is rediscovering chocolate as the food of the gods. So it's this theobromine cacao, which is the Latin name for the cocoa tree, means food of the gods. And it was revered as like this amazing food source, the cocoa bean, because of its energy giving properties. So it has theobromine, which is like a, a cousin twice removed from caffeine. So it doesn't give you the same spike, but it does give you a boost in energy. And there's been loads of tests on that recently. And, you know, the cocoa butter in the, in the, in the cocoa bean, the natural fat in the mm. bean is also gives you energy. It's a good fat, but it'll give you sustained energy. So you kind of get a boost, the steobromine, and the, there's a phenylalanine, which is that kind of gives you that um, love feeling, but of you know a the aphrodisiac part of chocolate. So it's all it's, it's in its chemical makeup. So it is it's really there. And I can tell you, when I was pregnant, I got completely my my food that I got addicted to was just cocoa beans freshly roasted, and they gave me so much energy. Wow. Um, and I think my little son kind of came out bouncing off the walls. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was part of it. Chocolate definitely is a booster. It's a great alternative for coffee for people who are trying to cut back on caffeine. So chocolate really is good for us then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all, I kind of always like to liken chocolate to apple pies. So like, you know, apple pies can be depending on how you make them, you know. So mm. chocolate is not, chocolate is not Chocolate doesn't grow on trees. Cocoa beans grow on trees. So it's everything else that you put with it that makes it, whether or not it's going to be something that's healthy or something that can potentially, you know, be harmful if you eat too much of it. So it's always worth checking the ingredients and knowing what you're consuming. If it has natural fat, the cocoa butter, and it has pretty natural sugars or even alternative sugars that are better for your body, then it's just like, you know, it's like eating anything else. It's definitely 
better in a lot of ways than a, a cheesy white roll or something like that. Yeah, so, and like, are we looking at specific chocolate? Like, does it have to be like a certain amount of cocoa, like 70% cocoa or anything like that? Or can we just have any kind of chocolate? <laughs> well, I think you can have any kind of chocolate. You have my permission to have any kind of chocolate. But like, it's all good things in moderation. Hmm. I make chocolate with coconut sugar and I don't replace the fat with any other kind of weird fat and I don't use any emulsifier. So there, it is worth checking on the ingredients. So there are, there's, there's chocolate out there, obviously, that has you know, 20 or less, even 18% cocoa. So you have to ask yourself, the percentage refers to how much cocoa, real, you know, chocolate is in there, cocoa. And then you have to say, what is the 82%? And you have to check. So if it's mostly white sugar and milk, maybe you don't want to have that much sugar. But if you're drinking cups of milk anyway, there's no, there's no big difference. But it's when you get into, you know, alternative fats and like filling agents and all these kind of stabilizers it's like anything else you know you can buy a can of tomatoes that just has tomatoes in it or you can buy a can of tomatoes that has all kinds of weird preservatives in it and the same goes for chocolate products brilliant listen Alison thank you so much for joining us on the opinion line today and I hope you get lots of lovely uh, Easter eggs and chocolate over the weekend (laughs) yeah happy Easter to everyone just relax and have fun we all deserve a bit of a rest enjoy sharing chocolate that's for sure that's for sure thanks very much well that's it that's my <laughs> show I'm done with I made it Jay um, a special thanks as I said earlier to Wayne Hilton for helping me out and uh, to the team here the show was edited by Terry Brennan and produced and researched by Fergal Barry have a fantastic Easter weekend everybody